VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, March the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonz King. He's producing the program once again today. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night. Fierce old wind banging against the window in the back of the house last night. So apparently a bit of winter weather coming tomorrow evening. Hopefully it doesn't interrupt my travel plans, but there we go. Let's go up and check in on the Briar team. Nathan Young wrapping up their Briar experience today versus Nova Scotia. They did indeed get a win, beat the Territories a couple of days ago. They were 1-6. and six. And Guju, hopefully he's not hurt too bad, but he has been complaining a little bit. Apparently overdid it in the pre-Briar training, but hopefully the lads can hold it together because they absolutely have another crack at a, a Briar championship, which would make it five in the past seven years. Extraordinary stuff. They play twice today against one of the wildcard teams, uh, Sterney and the Yukon, and they're five and one and well poised for a playoff run. All right. Sometimes I'm a little bit surprised, I suppose, when there are monies going out the door from whatever level of government, and when they're focusing on recreational activities or competitive sports, it doesn't get a very favorable reaction. And this one holds true. So $1.4 million from the province to Tennis NL to upgrade two tennis facilities that were built for the 1977 Canada Games. That's, of course, Greenbelt Tennis Club and the Riverdale Tennis Club. Of course, people in the tennis business, Melissa Pine and others, Mike Meany, who I still think is involved in tennis, they are quite pleased and chuffed. Gord Breen, of course, the president of St. John's Tennis. The facilities just need an upgrade, and most of it has to be done because of hosting the 2025 Canada Summer Games here. So tennis gets a little jolt. And remember, the president of Canadian tennis, the last two presidents of Canadian tennis, are from this province, Derek Rowe, and of course now Jennifer Bishop. So that's pretty interesting. All right, this date in history, we've heard this story before, but it was the day in 1964 that the very first Ford Mustang rolled off the assembly line. There's a little bit of confusion about who and who bought that particular first car off the assembly line. Uh, Ford introduced their Mustang at the World's Fair in New York City in 1964. It was on April 17th. A lady named Gail Wise bought that first Mustang, but the first convertible Mustang was purchased in St. John's, which is really quite strange when you think about it. So the serial number ending in 00001 was sold by a fellow named Harry Phillips uh, to a pilot named Stanley Tucker. He wasn't supposed to have sold it, so they called it an accidental sale, but Ford really wanted it back. Mr. Tucker said for a long time, look, you cash the check, you can't have the car. They kept after Tucker and after him and after him. Finally, he relinquished, gave the Ford Mustang convertible back to Ford. It's been uh, ever since in the Henry Ford Museum, but he got the one millionth Mustang off the assembly line. He's long since passed, Mr. Tucker has, but I've never really understood how the very first convertible Mustang even made its way to, I guess it's George G.R. Parsons, which was on Elizabeth Avenue at the time. And Harry Phillips sold it to Stanley Tucker. Always a great story. Uh, getting lots of questions, which I unfortunately can't answer, about the $225 million for road work and whether or not your bit of road is going to be done. The keen focus will be on the Trans-Canada Highway. There are going to be some other uh, areas attended to, like the town of Terranova and what have you. But the looming question for many, and certainly for me, is it's fine to talk about an unprecedented spend of money, but we do indeed have a problem and a distinct shortcoming with our approach to paving. Not because I say so, but a paving expert at Memorial University, Dr. Kamal Hossein, says exactly that. 
you know, we haven't really modernized our approach. It doesn't seem to me that we're getting the value for money spent on the roads. And, of course, there's no highway or byway that doesn't need some attention in this province. So we need to do the benefit of that, cost-benefit analysis, right? Is the value in the, the number of kilometers we can do, or is the long-term value in how reliable and robust and how the roads stand the test of time? So, anyway, we can take that on. And in that realm, price of gas up again, about 7.6 cents. Diesel up 5.7 cents. Furnace oil up by moderate 0.4. Stove oil up almost 5 cents as well. But here comes the conversation surrounding this new carbon tax, which we're not used to. The carbon tax in this province has been applied to diesel and gasoline and its provincial revenue. And there's also questions as to whether or not the uh, holiday in provincial gas tax, which is about $0.07, cents, is going to be reapplied at the end of this month. We don't know. And then, of course, it's the implications that we're going to have to try to figure out with the carbon tax being applied to home heating fuels. It's going to be completely unmanageable for many. We're not going to feel that this winter, but certainly the winter will come again next year. And so the province has spoken out about the want to keep the carbon tax off home heating fuels. So for folks who are struggling today... That struggle is going to be even mightier when it comes this time next year. But anyway, we can tackle it if you're so inclined. And so one of the cost of living issues that we all deal with, not everyone drives a car, so it might not impact every single person, but everybody eats. I have to say, it was kind of cringeworthy testimony offered by grocery store executives yesterday in front of the the, uh, Parliamentary Committee, the Standing Committee on Agriculture and Agri-Food. All right, so with overall inflation around 5.9%. Food inflation is about 11.4%. And the reasons why, I suppose, absolutely are varied. But the testimony was really trying to dig in to whether or not the concept of grocery chains gouging us and whether or not there's what people might refer to as excessive profit and the potential for a windfall tax. I get that because I grocery shop just like you do. And it does indeed bring upon a certain dollop of pain when you see the items being rung through. So when asked about this, the profit margins, I mean, in the essence of fairness and honesty here, profit margins are pretty thin in the grocery business. They really are. Their input costs have absolutely shot up, but so have their profits. So who gets to be the arbiter of what is a reasonable profit versus an excessive profit? I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, the way that the grocery store executives push back, and of course they're representing their own interests, they're representing their business and their shareholders, So here's one from Galen Weston, who I find particularly cringeworthy. He says, even if the industry had zero profits, a $25 grocery bill would still cost $24. So the claim that Canadian grocers cannot, or pardon me, can correct food price inflation is simply wrong. That's all fine and dandy, and whether it be the fellow Michael Medlin, who is the CEO of Empire Foods, which owns Sobeys and Freshco, Farm Boy Foodland, they all sing the same tune. So the looming question will be, What can be done? So if the grocery chains say our profit margins are where they have been for the last number of years and there is no wiggle room, and if there was any windfall tax, he says all that would be, all the result of that would be was less investment in the stores, less investment in their employees, reduced profit for their shareholders or dividends for their shareholders, and ultimately nothing would change at the till. Now, it's fine for them to spin it the way they do, but it did come across as a distinct who cares about me and you And I don't know what can be done and whether or not government can intervene or even if we really want them to intervene on food prices. You know, picking winners and losers is something that we don't want government involved in as much as possible. But the testimony offered by these grocery store executives is pretty much a 
I let them eat cake business, but anyway. Yeah, and Galen Weston goes on to say that, you know, Canadian shoppers were to the benefit of some $45 million as they froze the prices on the no-name brand, when in fact, again, if we're being honest, Mr. Weston, those types of uh, food prices during the holiday season happens more often than not. So you didn't really do anyone any extraordinary favors there. So yes, there's going to be implications with supply chains, and yes, there's going to be implications uh, with the war in Ukraine. But food inflation way outpacing overall inflation, and the questions, and we all have to ask them, is why? And look, I get the concept of windfall tax, whether whether they're talking about grocery chains or oil companies, of which are absolutely enjoying record profits. But how do you intervene? And again, who gets to be the person that decides how much profit is too much? Because profit is not a bad word. They're in it to make money. I totally get it. But when we are all feeling the pinch and our wages haven't increased commensurate with inflation or any other price point pressures that we're feeling, the questions are big and not hearing much in the way of answers. You want to talk about it? Let's go. All right. And then it's about food production right here in our own province. The crown lands issue is continuing to rear its ugly head. Realtors say they're facing a tsunami of crown land related problems. So whether it be stories of individual families who have lived on a parcel of land in their own family home for decades go to sell just to, be, just to find out that they're sitting on Crown land. So whether we go back and revert to 1976 where squatters' rights were revoked, this is becoming a massive problem. I know it might be a little bit more complicated than saying, okay, whatever you've been living on, you've got deeds back to the 1950s. If so, and we can prove through affidavits, ownership, and all that stuff, that you get to buy, you get to sell the property with no crown land implication. And then there's a story now regarding a fellow who was working offshore for some 10 years. He decided that he wanted to transition into the world of farming. So his name is Adam Furlong. He bought a 2.2-acre plot of land in Bloomfield. It was just, outside, it was just on the uh, Bonavista Peninsula. And then just to find out that a portion of that land was crown land. So he was only able to, inside his five-year business model, he couldn't satisfy it because he didn't have the land that he thought he had. So he managed to squash a couple of greenhouses on the property. And then crown lands come to him what seems to be an absolutely ridiculous offer. They say that they will uh, give him, let's see exactly where I can find this here. So they say that they would give him part of the existing 1.2 acres of land if he offered up his own land that he owns for an access road. So if we are so keen, and this the government saying the effort to double food production on this province, on the island in particular, is extremely important. So how are we getting in the way of this agricultural development with a squabble over 1.1 acres of crown land? And I think the same can be said for individuals. You know, people don't have the time, the patience, the money to get into the legal wranglings and the quieting of deeds when, in fact, we've got to figure out a way to make this manageable for everybody, whether it be as individuals or families or whether it be these agricultural proposals. We need to advance on all fronts, but it seems like we're at an absolute standstill. You know, we've had Greg French, who's a lawyer from Clarenville, who I would call an expert on the Crown Lands matter. Maybe we'll get him back on to walk us through his thoughts about 1976 and the implications since then. But the Crown Land story, if you're dealing with it, and not in the business of trying to get Crown Land for a cabin or what have you, but these real-life issues of, I've been living here for 45 years. I go to sell and bang, Crown Land. And then what? Okay, we can take it on. I had the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne, on the show yesterday. Tried to cover as much ground as we could. But, you know, the concept of replacing an emergency room with an urgent care clinic, it's the first one in the province. 
they say that some 80 to 90% of people who have presented themselves at the Whitburn Emergency Room could indeed be treated with an urgent care team. All right. Of course, the question is, what about the other 20%? But this is not going to be the last urgent care clinic. You know, even when Reg called yesterday from Bonavista to say that, well, why couldn't we have an urgent care set up here at our emergency department in Bonavista until the potential recruitment can satisfy a full emergency room operation? The landscape of healthcare is going to change dramatically. Whether it be peppering the landscape with collaborative care clinics, and they can work, but it's only going to work properly if we add healthcare professionals to the ranks as opposed to simply shift them around. But you've got to think that even in the, uh, the health accord itself, you know, painting a picture of what it's going to look like in the future, some places with emergency rooms now probably won't have them in the future, and they may re- be replaced by these urgent care clinics. You know, the thought and some of the reaction yesterday was, well, not everyone is going to be able to have every type of health care delivery service, whether it be in diagnostic imaging or possibly an emergency room or a dialysis unit, and they're going to be regionalized. So I think there's a bit of fear. I mean, change is always very difficult, but when we're talking about healthcare, when people get used to and they know that they have a community that has relied on the emergency room and now that it's taken away, and the implications are far-reaching, you know, whether it be with all the confusion and the mess in the ambulance system, don't get me going on what's going, up on, going on in Cape Royal, for instance. The government says that Fewers gave them the notice uh, that they were going to pull out within six months. That was two and a half months ago. Bob Fewer says no such notice was given. So, you know, when we have people already generally worried about these types of things, for the lack of info and the contradictions that rule these conversations, it's not helping at all. So if you want to take on any of those particular healthcare angles from er- anywhere, we can do it. And we'll keep going now in the healthcare world with one more story about people being separated, trying to enter into different levels of care and long-term care. And this one is about the Wolfries. They've been married for 69 years, and with a change in medical needs, they have now been separated. Minister Osborne yesterday that some more information on that front is coming in the near future, but it not, might not be soon enough for some of these families. And some of the implications there, of course, it's not just in long-term care. And there's an ongoing review. You know, even when we talk about the shortages, which dominate the conversation, some of the lack of opportunity to get a bed in long-term care is driven by the fact that there's some 750 registered nurse vacancies. And as a result, there's at least 200 beds unoccupied in long-term care here in the province. So what happens then? They're in an acute care bed or they're in a hospital bed and continually jamming up the system. So a shortage in one area has far-reaching implications, so we can tackle it if you are into it. All right, a little talk about the salmon stock. I meant to get to it yesterday, but did not. So DFO assessed some 21 rivers in the province in 2022. Here's some of the st- here, st- some of the numbers, pardon me. Nine of the 15 assessed rivers were in the critical zone, less than or equal to 40% of what DFO calls the biomass maximum sustainable yield. All right. Uh, They go on to say that there's another one river in the cautious zone. Five rivers were deemed healthy. Four rivers assessed in Labrador, one in the critical zone, one in the cautious zone, and two were healthy. But just to give you some historical context about some of these returns, let's use Con River for the example. Con River used to see about 8,000 to 10,000 salmon return to the river over 30 years ago. It's been dropping ever since. For the past three years in a row, fewer than 300 fish have returned. So from 10,000 to 300 is an awful long drop. And all the implications, whether it be, you know, some people point to aquaculture, fair enough, but there's changes in sea ice, massive changes in predation, 
changes in zooplankton and phytoplankton all playing a role here. But those numbers of uh, Atlantic salmon stocks and the returns are not encouraging, even after we've had a couple of reasonable years, but 2022, apparently a terrible year. And look, again, I get emails which I'm get confused by sometimes, but people say we've been refusing to talk about Chinese interference in the 19 and 21 elections. And of course we haven't. We've been talking about it. The Prime Minister is not making it easy on himself here. So, you know, parliamentary committees with top secret clearance and the ability to call for testimony, okay. But then just yesterday, the Liberals filibustered the committee, which keeps the former Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, from testifying. That's not helping and further muddying the waters. So a special rapporteur is just a fancy name for an individual. They say an imminent Canadian will be appointed to that post. Recommendations will be followed, including if the special rapporteur uh, recommends a public inquiry. But I have never heard anybody really truly offer an understandable or reasonable answer to why not simply go to a public inquiry. Just uncover everything. You know, there can be a lot of closed-door stuff because there will be some top-secret information exchanged. But... I don't know why this is going on the way it is. And so what always happens in these circumstances is when the Prime Minister tiptoes around these very critically important questions, whether it be when he knew about it, what he did or did not do about it, and who some of these 11 candidates will be, and whether or not he has any information on the money that was funneled to them through the Toronto consulate representing Beijing, I don't know why a public inquiry isn't isn't the go-to it would potentially squash some of the commentary and the rhetoric, which is getting out of hand. Because our faith in democratic institutions, including our elections, is going to be paramount. I mean, there's already an air, and I don't buy the fact that Canada is broken and never been so divided. You know, we have a very regional approach to governance here in this country. There's a vast difference between how people think and feel in the West and in Central and Atlantic Canada. But if we're going to try to mend some of those fences, which I don't think are as broken as some people will intimate, this one's important, and we've got to get to it, and we're not afraid to talk about it. And if you want to bring it up on the show this morning from any angle, we can do it. And look out for the polar bears. Some picture of that polar bear, I uh, can't remember, St. Carol's, I think, maybe? Uh, incredible picture. Oh, and one thing we all share, regardless of who you are, where you are, most of us love the 50-50. Love the 50-50. Here's a great one for you to take uh, an opportunity and take advantage of. So it's been launched by the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association. You just go to their website, avalonceltics.ca, and right there there's a very convenient link to get yourself some 50-50. All the funds are to make hockey accessible for all. Control fees so that families can enjoy the great sport that we all love, and that's ice hockey. So the Avalon Celtics website, go there, click the 50-50 link, there's a bunch of cool features there. The money, you can say that you're going to offer to support of one team or another, one player or another, whether it be your son, your daughter, friends up the street, your grandchildren. So give it a look. Hopefully there'll be a nice whopping big prize for someone to enjoy when we wrap it up. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show. When we return, you know the deal. That requires you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Monique. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent, thanks. How about you? Oh, as good as I can be, I guess. What's going on? I think you're a paramedic involved with one of the the confused areas. What's happening in your world? 
So I'm a paramedic in Whitburn. Um, I've been a paramedic since June. Uh, I'm only 20, so it's my first ever real job. Um, and basically last Thursday, so a week from today, they came out on Facebook and said, 6 p.m. tonight, everyone in Whitburn is shut down. <clears throat> so Eastern Health released that before they had a chance for our boss to tell us himself. The reasoning behind canceling our service was because we had a supposed contract breach where an emergency call was not answered. Um, I know for a fact that that call was answered. I was working that day. It was my boyfriend who responded to the call. So the emergency call got answered. There was never a breach there. But most importantly, it's Smith has been trying to get the word out on what actually is happening on our side of things, and no one has reached out to any of us. What did happen? So Ishmael said there was a contract breach there with the, the emergency call that uh, reportedly didn't get answered, but it did, uh, and there's documentation of that. They also said that there was someone who was not registered uh, to work. They were registered and have confirmation emails to prove that. Um, so there's just a whole pile of little points that we have proof that that's not true or incorrect information, and we're still in limbo about what's going to happen with our service. What's going to happen with your job? Right now I have no job, Patty. So me and 14 other people at Smith's are unemployed. And the province is crying for EMS workers, but they just let all of us go with no warning. And Mr. Osborne came on CBC and said that he was going to try and find jobs for us, and he was in contact with all of us, but that is not true at all. We have not been contacted by anyone other than someone who was contacted by my boss to see if they could find a spot for us to work. Some of these things are infuriating. So we have a shortage of paramedics and ambulances in many, many communities. And people think that everything's hunky-dory, say, in the larger centers. Where that's not exactly true either. I mean, we have problems at, with Eastern Health right here in the city sometimes with the shortage and the red alerts that happen sometimes when people call 911. And ambulances are lined up in front of the emergency room trying to offload patients. So if we're taking another ambulance or two, out of the service in, say, for instance, the metro region to help with the folks in Whitburn, as we have to. I mean, they have to have an ambulance close by. How could it possibly be that we couldn't even use the people who are paramedics in the Whitburn area as the paramedics for the Whitburn area? You know, the shuffling around the deck chairs is just nonsensical. Well, so since I've been out in Whitburn, we've been called at least three times that I remember to go into town to respond to calls in town to help them out. So I know they're super busy, and it's nothing against the Eastern Health Medics because they're doing a great job, and they're doing all they can with working overtime to try and cover our service area. But it's also costing almost double to have them out there working overtime than it is to fund all three trucks in Whitburn. Yeah. I mean, it's just salt to the wound to find out on Facebook before you get a heads up from your boss and some idea about what's next. So... For the 13, I think that's the number used, 13 uh, EMS employees out in that area, does anybody have a job? Does anybody have any inkling of where they're heading to next, whether it be, you know, working for Eastern Health directly or anything under the sun? 
not one person out there has a plan right now because it was so blindsided that we haven't had time to try and figure out where to go or what to do. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different areas with an ambulance-confused uh, related matter that it's really starting to uh, rear its ugly head. I mean, we've been talking about what the ambulance service is going to look like in the future in this province, but unfortunately we've been talking about that for years. I mean, imagine we've arrived at a place that the MHA has had to go back to the House of Assembly for an emergency debate to legislate, or pardon me, to uh, deem the group out uh, represented by the Teamsters as an essential service. Of course it's, a, it's an essential service. How could it be anything but an essential service? So do you and your colleagues have any thoughts on what should happen in the big scheme of things with the ambulance service, whether it be some multinational comes to town, takes it all over, one kit and caboodle, or should it all be the public offering? What do you, you and your friends think? Right now, we just want to see our service back so that we can have jobs. Because right now, it's just not feasible. Like, I'm only 20, so I don't have any children yet. I don't have a mortgage payment, but I know almost all of my coworkers have children, mortgage payments, car payments, and no income coming in right now. So obviously, time is of the eff- of the essence. What what sort of timeline do you have before you're going to have to make big life decisions about where you go? Well, right now, I'm giving myself about another five days before I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to go out of province or not, because I really don't know if it's able to work here right now. And I know that there's other medics that work at Smith's right now that are looking at away jobs. You know, how can that possibly be the scenario we find ourselves in? The province knows full well we've been losing paramedics for a variety of reasons. It's been extremely difficult to uh, staff paramedics in certain parts of the province, notably Labrador. And here we are with 13 unemployed uh, EMS workers in your region, and some of you might be leaving. You say it might be as early as five days from now. That's that's something that is the absolute worst-case scenario, and it's avoidable. There's something that can be done. So this is just brutal. Exactly. Monique, keep us in the loop, especially when you've arrived at a decision whether or not it's time to leave or you've been given more information from the Minister or Eastern Health about the future for you and your colleagues out in Whitburn, and I'd really appreciate the update when you have one. Perfect. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, Monique. Take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, I guess Monique, uh, my mother-in-law's name is Monique. Uh, let's see if we can try to stay half on schedule here with the breaks. Jason Spingle is the Secretary-Treasurer at the FFAW. Lots of stuff to discuss, of course, inside the fishery. There's a petition being landed on the desk of uh, Federal Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray regarding the mackerel fishery this year. Of course, there was no mackerel fishery last year, even though it's a shared migratory stock between us and the northeastern United States. Maybe add to it the recent numbers in snow crab, which look to be in pretty good shape, but... That doesn't necessarily line up with what the market realities are. Jason Spingler right after this. Don't go. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Secretary Treasurer at the FFAW. That's Jason Spingle. Jason, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. I think before I went to the break, I called you the Secretary General. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, no. Secretary I, General. Well, uh, I kind of, when I got the position, I said, "Don't please don't confuse me with uh, the uh, Treasury of the Secretary, Janet Yellen. Uh, I read the news there. So <laughs> Fair enough. In the U.S., so, so no, no big deal. Let's start with uh, mackerel. Yeah. So there were some 185 harvesters were 
consulted about what they have seen. And I, I look, I don't know what people see where they are, but you know, how do we, how do we make sure that people aren't seeing what they want to see? You know, because we know the science hasn't been done. So, how powerful do you think that the anecdotal evidence should be when uh, Minister Murray considers this year's macro fishery? Yeah. So I, I, I was part of a, a, a four of us, uh, myself, staff member, and two experienced harvesters were at the meeting in Halifax last Wednesday, as well as another experienced harvester that participated virtually from from uh, for our organization, Newfoundland Labrador. And, uh, you know, that was one of the emphasis points. And I guess, as you know, if I said to the minister directly herself, I said, when harvesters say that they see fish, you know, minister, if it's something like snow crab or redfish that are hollowed from the deep, they, you know, they see them in their gear. The difference with mackerel is, is that when they migrate uh, to our province in the summer and fall months, is they literally occupy, some, you know, some of their distribution anyway, or quite a bit of it, in the coves and bays and tickles, uh, you know, and, and their surface, I mean, you can look over a wharf or if you're out in boat, you can see schools of mackerel breaching or swimming along by your boat. And I guess the point that we made there is, you know, okay, you could say to um, uh, Trevor Jones, who's who's experienced mackerel harvester, well, Trevor, you know, you're, you, you, may, uh, you may have a certain view for saying this, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I certainly know Trevor's reporting what he's saying and the rest of the harvesters, but I'm just saying the, the people on the other side, uh, they may be playing, for example, devil's advocate, they'll say. But what about the harvesters that don't, uh, have never really caught mackerel? Not everyone catches mackerel. And more significantly, what about the people in the communities that aren't fish harvesters at all? And you have hundreds of people saying the same thing. We've never seen as much mackerel uh, or, or never as more mackerel as we saw in 2022. And these are simultaneous reports, whether it's from the West Coast to the, to the Strait of Belle Isle to southern Labrador um, uh, and right along the northeast coast, right down, and even to the south coast. So, you know, like I, the point we made to the chair, the DFO chair, was, um, you know, how can you have all these observations that we have documented formally through like a formal survey and have the stock on the verge of disappearance, I guess that's, that's my t- terms, but deep in the critical zone. And and the response from DFO was, oh, I think you can have those two things. Well, I said, you know, we'll have to agree to disagree. So I guess the point is here is, you know, you can throw up your hands. Uh, we, we, we're we not in a position where we're ever going to do that or can afford to do that. We had to try to bridge the gap. We think that the stock has migrated further north, and the egg survey that was once some reflection of the stock conducted up around PEI in, in May month, June month, was somewhat reflective of the stock. There's no doubt about it that with the small mackerel we're seeing and these other things that there's been, you know, and mackerel showing up in abundance uh, like uh, as far north as Charlottetown, which has probably never been seen like it's been the past couple of years, that we're seeing this shift probably due to warming temperatures, for example, that are recorded and we have to find a way to bridge the gap, and that's what we're focused on. So the other point there, and I guess that ties to, uh, you know, whether it's mackerel or they shut down the northern Gulf cod fishery. When you shut down a fishery, you disconnect uh, not only the harvesters but the communities from the resource, and the difference in small amounts of catch that can provide uh, a wealth of information to help assess the stock um, and the future trajectory of that stock is, uh, the, the point being, I guess, on this, is that shutting down fisheries should be an ultimate last, last resort 
because then you, you just lose so much and, uh, you know, moving forward is much more difficult. So that's, that's our proposal for mackerel. That's our proposal for northern golf cod, uh, for example, is to let's have a small fishery where we get all the data that we need and keep a connection to these resources. Yeah, because there really should be some sort of a collaborative joint approach because the stock that we share with the Northeastern United States, they proceed, albeit with a reduced quota versus zero here. Now, help me understand this part regarding licenses. Even when there's a moratorium, harvesters still get their licenses, but that has not happened on mackerel yet this year. So do, do we understand what's going on with TFO about the mackerel license, even though we don't know whether there's going to be a attack associated with the species? Yeah, so... I guess hopefully we'll have a, a, some type of a fishery and the license. So when they move to the national online licensing system, uh, licenses are online. So we have written confirmation uh, at least two occasions from the department. This was brought up also at the mackerel advisory, and you have harvesters from all around Atlantic Canada and Quebec, and the same concern was put forward. And uh, the response was reassuring, as best you can have it, is that no one will lose their commercial mackerel license. Uh, uh, we can see it online. If we put it there, we'll, you know, if we put it up there on the system, uh, and I understand to some degree computer systems, we'll, you'll have, we'll have to have you pay for it, and then, like they had to last year before the decision was made, because some people had their license paid for, we'll have to do thousands of refunds. So we've been reassured uh, at a at a regional level and even at an Ottawa level. That's who chaired the meeting in Ottawa. That people's macro licenses will be uh, a part of their uh, enterprise, and they don't have to worry about losing their macro license under a moratorium or any other type of license. So we have that reassurance as best you can have it, I guess. Okay, let's move on to, to snow crab. Yep. So in 2019, it was a record 25 uh, low record low of landings. Now last year, there was an increase of some 30-odd percent for snow crab. The uh, DFO is coming by to say that the estimated combined weight of commercially sized crab is around 200,000 tons. That's all very encouraging, given the fact that five years ago, it looks like snow crab was going to collapse. But it doesn't mean that the market is healthy. So last year, we're told that some maybe 30% still remains in cold storage. People try to simplify it by simply saying the market that was Japan has been infiltrated by a lower-priced Russian crab, and so consequently, that's the issue. So it's one thing to have a healthy stock, but what's the market reality? Yeah, so just to reiterate, so, you know, uh, everyone agrees, us at DFO, <laughs> that we have a very, very healthy snow crab resource. Uh, certainly there's been concerns in, in 2J, uh, Labrador, and there's still some concerns there. But thankfully, there was some more positive news uh, since last season even there. But everywhere else, uh, I would say, just to sum it up, a very, very healthy resource. And you, and I think I really appreciate your point that in some areas, uh, there just a few years ago, uh, there were some major concerns, northeast coast, south coast, and, you know, with conservation measures, reductions in and quotas as part of those, I guess, is that we've seen a, a healthy uh, recovery of those resources. But back to the market, there's no doubt about it that, uh, you know, market indexes, the reports of inventory, exactly what all the details of those are. We can only go by what, uh, you know, the government produces in terms of exports. Uh, Japan, uh, we do ship um, uh, product to Japan uh, but it's not; it hasn't been a major market in recent years. The United States is by far and away our major market, and I guess you, you know, uh, certainly no economist, but using the term, you know, macro uh, macroeconomics, they say with respect to what you talked about in your preamble: food prices, 
gas prices, people got to have those. <laughs> None of us can, you know, there's no choice there. I guess that's another uh, topic that we could talk about. But uh, then is the, uh, that, that, that goes to the harvesters as well uh, with their costs. But uh, people, uh, you know, interest rates, people don't have as much disposable income. We know that these wonderful items like snow crab, lobster, uh, they're uh, generally associated with, uh, you know, treats. Uh, the, you know, I went on vacation or going out once a month for, for a meal. And uh, I guess people have to make choices. So there are some concerns in the, the market, uh, talking about inventories that we haven't seen at this time of year, a lower market uh, index than we've seen in a while. We know these things can change. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's some challenges that's noted that haven't been in recent years. Uh, I guess we're going to have a contingent going to, uh, like we do every year, to the Seafood Expo North America. It's basically, typically known by everyone to the Boston Seafood Show. Sure. And uh, there will be, you know, uh, hopefully a lot of information gathered there. Hopefully it will be more positive. So we know these things can, can recover because the overall supply of snow crab hasn't changed a lot, even with the closure in, in Alaska. And, uh, you know, We'll uh, we'll work through these, but every year is different, you know. But it's certainly, yeah, we got a healthy, healthy resource in snow crab, and some challenges. Uh, I think everyone's acknowledging that we haven't seen um, in uh, in recent years for sure. So, yeah, uh, our focus is to uh, get the best value we can for our members and the fishery as a whole. So. Yeah, it really did feel to me like it was more the fact that it was a luxury item that finds its way to a white tablecloth in a New York City restaurant versus it's all about Russia and Japan, which was the go-to initially here on that one. Uh, very quickly, because I do have to get going, uh, what's the issue with turning in the permits into licenses for uh, sea cucumber in 3PS? Yeah, so uh, there's an advisory on, uh, on sea cucumber. Um, I haven't been closely associated with that fishery myself. I know that's an issue is on the table, and uh, we've had full representation up to this point, and we'll continue to uh, work with the department and our committees, most importantly, the people that are elected to represent the fleets. There's always harvesters. Uh, that's the key point, whether it's negotiations or advisories. Like I attended uh, uh, the uh, crab advisory yesterday, and, uh, you know, there's the committees and then the, the leadership there of all those fleets will be at the table to make the, the appropriate proposals on moving forward. So Appreciate the time, Jason. Get that done. Thanks, Thanks for this. Thanks so much for the time this morning, Patty. Take care. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Jason Spingle, Secretary Treasurer with the FFAW. One more before we get to the break. Let's go to Bob on two. Bob, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Excellent, sir. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, first time calling in now. Welcome. Um, thanks. Um, I... I I just wanted to call in because I wanted to uh, share with the uh, listeners and everybody about, because uh, anyway, I'll back up. We just came back from uh, six weeks, been in um, uh, Portugal and Spain. We said we wanted to get out of Dodge for uh, some of the winter. Lovely. We, we left on the 13th of January and we got back here on the 27th of February. So we escaped uh, a lot of old stuff. Lucky. Um, Oh, yeah, I know. I know. But I just wanted to share something. So before I left, uh, you know, I was thinking about some kind of roaming package, right, and all of that because we're going to be over there, and I figured I'd need something. So especially, like, uh, I can tell everybody, uh, you want something because Google Maps, when you're in, uh, like, Seville somewhere or wherever, yeah, comes in handy, let's say the least. So uh, I went out. I'm with Bell. So I went out and, you know, went there, went for Bell, talked to him. 
uh, I mean, it's just so, what I wouldn't say, expensive. Right? It's unbelievable. Uh, so what I ended up getting was uh, one gig, uh, I don't know, 800 minutes for your phone, and uh, that was 80 bucks, right? Like, it was expensive, right? So, yep. so then when I got to London, uh, I was in the hotel room, and, I, you know, I had Wi-Fi, but, uh, of course, inadvertently, I had less time to data. Um, and then uh, realized that, you know, half my one gig was pretty well gone by the next day, and her, we just got started. So I spoke to the bell, and they said, oh, no, sir, like, if you if your data is on, even if you're on Wi-Fi, you know, you're, it's considered being used, using it. Right? Ridiculous, and, uh, you know, that's the policy, and so on, and so on. So, anyway, that's how that went. So then when I got to Alborn in Portugal, I was talking to a guy on a bus from Ontario, and he had got a SIM card uh, from over there. And I said, oh, very good. So I'm staring at it now. So I went ahead and got a SIM card over there. So this one's called Vodafone. I mean, there are SIM cards everywhere. You can even order them on, on Amazon. So I went ahead and got a SIM card. Now, get this, right? So I got 50 gigs, which, like, is a lot. And I paid 15 euros for that. So that's, like, about 17, 18 Canadian. So I went into the store, buddy, put the SIM card in. I went over and... My wife and I had lunch across the street, and I came back over 10 minutes later. He handed me over the phone. $18 later, I have 50 gigs, which I used for the rest of the trip. By the time I got finished, which I used a lot, I think I had used 7 gigs, right? Yeah, well, 50 gigs is is a whopping big amount. I mean, this, the... The summary of the story is that we are being absolutely milked here by the big three telecoms, whether it be TELUS, Bell, and Rogers. And roaming fees that you're talking about, roaming fees actually went up yesterday for Canadians yeah, traveling to Europe. So a couple of bucks extra a day if you're a TELUS customer. Yeah. Bell, a very similar move. Rogers hasn't yeah. made any indication that they're going to yet. But let me throw these numbers out, even for data usage here in this country, uh, regarding other countries and what they pay. So... We pay a thousand times more than they do in Finland. <laughs> like, how can that possibly yeah. be the case? When we were in uh, Europe last summer, we did the same thing. We bought a SIM card for pennies on the dollar versus what it would have been to even set up an international roaming package with my provider. It's madness. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And that's why I wanted to call in, too, because you're right. I mean, it's absolutely, it's almost like a sort of, you know, it's like a mafia, for God's sake. Right? Like it is, it's atrocious. And I just want to just remind people, you know, guys, girls, you don't have to do it, right? You just get a SIM card, put it in, you know, we spin it around, put it in, take it out. When I got back to Toronto, I put my other one back in and yeah. away to go. And one other thing, you probably know this too, if you've been in Europe, WhatsApp, right? Yep. Uh, like, you know, honestly, I didn't know about it. I said, what is, you know, what is WhatsApp? Like only 1.4 billion people use it. And I use that. So anybody home, of course, all they need is Wi-Fi. Uh, send the link, nothing to it, no cost, and then so you can check, you can FaceTime, you can do whatever the hell you want. Uh, and again, you're not you're not counting down to uh, the Bells and Rogers and Tellus of the world, right? It's it's atrocious, but like people, are, I hope people who are planning on going, because a lot of people are going to Portugal and Spain now, people are planning on going, for God's sakes, uh, do that, right? Get a SIM card uh, and don't, don't do what I did, because... You know, it ended up costing me, and there was no need whatsoever, right? 
Absolutely right. I wouldn't mind traipsing around the Algarve versus traipsing around St. John's here for the last six weeks. Uh, uh, very quickly, someone just, I saw the corner of my eye, someone said, must be nice to have your money went to Europe. Myself and my wife saved to celebrate our 25th anniversary with a quick jaunt over. That's about it. Uh, Bob, good to have you on the show. Fair warning to the listeners. Thanks for this. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. And just uh, once again for context. So Canadians pay seven times more for a gigabyte of data than people in Australia. 25 more than people pay in Ireland and France. A thousand times more than people in Finland. Really? Let's take a break. When we come back, Crown Lands, don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to a gentleman who would like to be the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Eugene Manning, the third to declare. Eugene, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. Thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Listen, I heard you uh, mention that article this morning on Crown Lands. It's an issue near and dear to my heart, so I thought I'd call in. Um, I think that's an issue uh, across the board here in the province that I don't see how government hasn't acted on it already. It, it hits agriculture, it hits small business, big big business, our seniors. Um, it's such an easy win, Patty. I don't know why the government's not doing more to fix that issue. Well, I mean, a couple of things uh, to that point. Government does have a distinct role to play in the management of Crown land. You can only hope that they're as diligent uh, with big industry like wind hydrogen proposals as they seem to be with small farms and individuals sitting on a plot of land that they've lived on for 50, 60 years just to run into a buzzsaw about Crown lands. So they can't have it both ways. You're going to have to be diligent with all, not with one, or we figure out a way to try to mimic what was the case prior to 1976. You know, if we have affidavits of ownership and been paying taxes to the municipality, all these things, there's got to be an easier way to manage a crown land issue versus what we're doing today. It, it, it can't be as cumbersome on the, on the landowner, those who, who believe they've owned land and in some cases owned for generations, to prove to crown land that they own the land they exist on. Coming back to the wind energy program, look no further than that. Nova Scotia has stepped ahead of us and already approved crown lands permits for those uh, projects to get underway, and we're still here trying to figure out our system uh, and the proposals coming forward. Well, is uh, that accurate, though, Eugene? Because there is a crown land lease component to the fiscal framework. So my understanding is the crown land issue will be very easily managed once pro- projects get actual approvals. Uh, uh, yes, Patty, but that, that Crown Lands process is still in, while the framework has been put out, the process is still in motion. I believe the first phase of that could concludes in May, whereas in Nova Scotia, those lands have already been developed. But more particular to the point here is you have the Crown Lands Registry and you have the Registry of Deeds that are two separate entities in the province, that, and those two registries aren't even speaking to each other at the moment. This is one area where the uniqueness of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, is, isn't something we should be proud of. It's, it's unique to the country how we how we establish ownership here and it's something that really has to be addressed yeah i mean we do indeed have a two or a splintered system very much unlike everywhere else in the country so give us an idea so here you are running for eventually elected office first at the helm of your own party so what exactly does need to be done here eugene because i've had greg french on who i think has been the go-to legal voice on crown lands matters he has his perspective about how you make things easier or better or streamlined what do you think we should do so yes, and, and Mr. French has been doing some great work, and the Canadian Bar Association actually wrote a paper on this back in 2021. And I'll say our party, uh, the PC party, back 
even before you remember that couple in Catalina had that issue there in November. Uh, back before that, our AGM, the first policy resolution that has been passed by the PC party in, I think, five or six years, I brought to the floor. It was passed unanimously, and it was re- relating crown lands and a revamping of that system. I think the government has been doing some good work in some areas. If you go online now, they have a land use registry um, where you can access some information, and it, it seems like a great base model to me. I think the challenge we have now is People think this is such a big task to take on that it's a bit too overwhelming for everyone. But if you use that as a base model and you start there and there exists a Crown Lands Registry, it might be a bit outdated and some updating, but you put that into the system. You combine that with the Registry of Deeds and natural resources with mineral rights and quarry permits and whatnot. It doesn't become an issue then, Patty, of an empty map. It becomes an issue of a puzzle that you're slowly starting to fill in. And whether it be if you're a, a paying municipal taxes or whatnot, there must be other registries on the municipal level throughout the province that we can start to close those gaps and bring the system in. It may not be perfect, but I think it's an easy start to start to help these people who get stuck in limbo, not to mention being able to establish the rights of the land, but beyond that is the time tax. That individual this morning is two and a half years trying to get an acre straightened out to start a business, an agricultural business at that on the Bonavista Peninsula, and it seems like there's no one there to help them. Seemingly not, and the offer that was brought forward by the department sounded ludicrous to me, and of course wasn't accepted. You know, combining the two entities involved in the Crowns of Lands issue is absolutely a step forward, but I'm not so sure it does, you know, it'll streamline issues, but does it really change the water on the beans with the ownership issue that we're dealing with? Well, look, the the proposal right now, and I appreciate there's, Everyone has to appreciate when you're establishing open, notorious, continuous, and exclusive use of the land, right now with adverse possession from, 50, from 1957 to 77, look, Patty, uh, Time, time doesn't change. Finding those individuals that can establish, and I've gone through this personally, that this meadow was owned by this person or they grew potatoes on it, it becomes more challenging every day. The proposal, I think, that the government has put forward recently is to change to 10 years, which we change it from 1967 to 77. That only kicks the can down the road. And coming back, I don't think bringing forward the two systems are going to make the system perfect, but I don't see why that's not being tackled today. It, it, it sends us in the right direction for sure. Yeah, I think so, because, you know, it's like this on most fronts when we're dealing with a bigger entity than yourself, whether it be with a bank or an insurance company or the federal government, and, or in this case, the provincial government. Some people will just throw in the towel. You know, they'll say, I don't have the time, the money for lawyers to quiet this deed and go through all of the hoops that I'm going to have to jump through to satisfy this. So some, consequently, some people, whether it be like the, the diamonds in Catalina, not everyone has that wherewithal to want to fight upstream and think that there's no victory available here, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to change my plans. I'm not going to sell. I'm going to continue to live here. When, in fact, that's an unnecessary upsetting of an individual or a family's wants in this world when there's something that we can't do. The system doesn't work, and to acknowledge that is the first thing required by Minister Bragg and whoever comes uh, after him. So acknowledge up out front that it doesn't work, and then tell me how you're going to fix it. You know, it's fine for us to talk about how badly it's broken, but not hearing much in the way from people who are sitting in the seat of government about how they're going to change it for the better. Uh, last word to you, Eugene, before we take off. No, I agree, and, and you spoke to that, to that couple in Catalina. Uh, look at our larger issues. Here was a young family looking to move into the community and set up roots. We have an older family looking to move on and get, and get better service of care. I mean, and no one's there to help them. Uh, Patty, there's easy wins to be found in government. It's not... It, it, they mightn't be solve all the problems, but we can find things from day to day that's going to make it easy for the for the average Newfoundlander and Labradorian. And we start on those easy wins, and we'll get to the bigger ones in time. Appreciate the time this morning, Eugene. Thank you. 
Thank you, Patty. Look forward to the next one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Eugene Manning. He's the former president of the PC party, and he's wanting to be the next leader of the party. So there's three people in that race, of course. Just a reminder, that's Lloyd Parr, Tony Wakeham, and Eugene Manning. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Roy, you're on the air. Line number two. Roy, you're on, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent, sir. How about you? Just great, just great. Patty, I'd like to uh, talk about uh, the predation of uh, salmon by seals. I've been watching this now for uh, pretty much the past month. It's Oyster and Long Harbor, eh? Mm-hmm. That is two, uh, two really good salmon rivers, and the seals are uh, the seals are having the smorgasbord, to say the least, every day. You can see them when they uh, come up with the small salmon, you know, the salmon, the one they had last year. So uh, I... Uh, I have this conversation every year. I've had Todd O'Brien out from the Fisherman's Broadcast and we witnessed this firsthand, right? You know, it's, uh, uh, I don't know what you can do about it. And ironically, it's the it's the harbor seal, which is uh, protected, of course. i got to laugh when I say that. That's the, the harbor seal is where, where the worm comes from in the codfish, right? But they're protected. They're not allowed to kill them. I'm a, a fisherman of 50-plus uh, years. I'm 67 years old, so I'm fishing since I'm a teenager. And... Uh, I mean, there's no way to make any money at uh, at seals because, like right now, a box of uh, 303 bullets is 100 plus dollars, and you'd be lucky to get 20 dollars for seal pelt, seal pelt if you got that. But anyway, uh, they're, they're rampant here, by uh, you know, 365 days a year, one time in Long Harbor or a percentage bay, you wouldn't see a seal. The other bay is just full of seals, but now I tell you, it's a, it's a different story. So what can be done? I mean, we have the conversation all the time, whether about be the rebound in the northern cod stock or what have you. And yes, well, I mentioned predation along with zooplankton and phytoplankton and sea ice and changing temperatures of the water when it comes to the, the numbers of salmon returns to the rivers. Because unless we can expand a market for the sealed products, whether it be the pelt, the meat, and uh, I think most importantly the omega-3 oils, then nothing's really going to change here. Because it's hard to really envision government having a call for the sake of, even though it does happen in other parts of the world, with sea lions in California and seals in Scotland and what have you. So do you think it all relies on having a more expanded market for seals before there's any change going to happen with the amount or the number of seals out there? You're not going to have to market for simple fact. You haven't got to, you know, you're not going to get to price. Like, you take a long line. The first thing you have to do is get insurance. I don't even know if you can get insurance now to go with the ice. Uh, then your bullets and your gold and your crew. Like, just, there's no way you can make money. I'd like to say, I got a sea license since I'm a teenager. I'll say at least 40 years. I haven't made $1,000 to pass 40 years because it's just, it's not, it's not worth your while. There's, 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 no, there's no price from the damn things are coming up with, with you know, those those, those old salmon that went in last year and spawned out. Now they're eating them coming out. And when they start going in again, the same thing. Like, you never see, uh, you would never see seals in the fall of the year one time. Now the rivers, I mean, uh, like I said, Todd was over. I'm on the point now for the past, oh, at least a month. Like I said, the, the ice at the end of the rivers. And they're there, my son, 10 and 12. I, I go up and watch them in the morning and the evening come up, you know, jumping after the salmon, right? The, the small salmon. It's a standby, but, uh, you know, but then again, uh, 
I'm after calling in an animal rights activist. Oh well, they got to live too, you know. So I guess I guess the way it'll be, we'll we'll, we'll have a, a a billion seals. I don't know, it's a bit of an exaggeration, and, and the salmon stocks will be depleted. You know, that's 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 the way I got to figure it out. Just just uh, just you know, just nuts. Like, what are we going to do about it? Like, you know. Well, I don't know. I think we've kind of missed the boat here a couple of times. When you've got organizations like the World Trade Organization make their ruling about on the inability to uh, import seal products into Europe, which is based on nothing, the same crowd who are okay with bullfighting and foie gras or have a problem with a well-regulated uh, seal harvest, it's just madness and absolutely maddening. You know, and I think we should change our tune on how we market a seal. You know, the world is hungry for treatments like omega-3 oils, and the seal product is absolutely at the top of that list for uh, quality and efficiency. So if we started with that, maybe we could chip away at the ability to sell the rest of the seal. I mean, just think about it. If you fly into the United States and have a seal skin purse, they confiscate it. I mean, based on what? It's based on fear and propaganda, which is uh, using all reels from the 70s and the beautiful little white coat, which we don't take anymore, and the red blood and the white ice. And so people have been convinced that it's all about barbarians out there brutally taking seals with hackapicks and whatnot, when that's just not the case anymore. So, you know, we've been bamboozled. Well, Teddy, you know, you go to a slaughterhouse for cows or pigs or chickens, whatever. A hundred percent. It's the same thing, and like I said, I, I'm seeing this. Like, you know, I, I got a headache every morning. I, like I said, I've been, uh, I've been fishing for fifty plus years. I'm not allowed to catch a salmon. The seals are up there now, just tearing the bellies out of them and eating them. And uh, oh man, you know, and, and the fact that the, you, you you can't kill those. These are the harbor seals, and one, you know, with the Oh man, oh man, oh man! This is the worm. That's where the worm comes from in the codfish, by the way, in the harbor seal. I don't, of course, in, in the Marine Institute some years ago, right? And the intestine of the harbor seal, like, is housing hundreds of thousands of worms, parasites. So when they, uh, of course, when they uh, defecate, whatever, just do do what they got to do. This the seal eats, and then it grows in the flesh of the codfish. So these are the, <laughs> not allowed to kill them. So like. How much sense does it make? You know what I mean? I do. Well, I mean, the seal herd itself is going to have a problem with the numbers continue to grow at the pace they are. And then you add in the, the problem the seals are going to have with the lack of sea ice and what that means as well. So I think there's lots to this, but I don't. I just don't know what changes. I really don't. You know, I, I'm not one to throw my hands in the air, shrug my shoulders, and say, well, that's it, we can't do anything about it. But I'm not so sure what we can do. I do think the, the issue lies in an expanded market because uh, you're right, no one's making any money at it, and we're not even taking the full quota of seals that are available annually because... Again, it costs too much to go get something, which is a very risky endeavor as well, to get very little in return. Paddy, I'll say this, you know, the, you know, I, don't, I won't keep you all day. Like, I don't call it a bad word. It's not a bad word for me because I don't like bad things, and, and I'll, I'll stick to that. Like, if uh, if I went up there and, and you know, I, I killed a two or three of them, they go. You know, you want your fire at them, but you're, you're not allowed to kill them because they're harbor seals. Like, they're just, they're just gorging on salmon. I mean, that's, there you are. Yeah, you see them up the rivers in places where it never was the case in the past and at different seasons where you never saw them either. Uh, Roy, I'm glad you made time for the show this morning. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, predation is absolutely part of it. Um, but again, where does the seal conversation go? I really don't know. Uh, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly for Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's kind. You? I'm doing great. Patty, uh, <clears throat> my original reason for calling, uh, I, I guess, was uh, I wanted to talk about uh, 
once again to bring up the whole issue of uh, childcare uh, in terms of the availability of, of spaces. Um, I continue to hear from families, certainly in my district, and uh, not just my district, but uh, you know, from across, people from across the province, uh, who are continuing to struggle uh, with uh, with finding childcare. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have affordable childcare, but that's of no use to a family if there are no spaces available. And as I had said to you one time before when we were talking. A number of the people that have reached out to me are actually healthcare professionals. I've had uh, at least two doctors. I've had several nurses and other people working in healthcare who are saying, like, you know, here we are in a healthcare crisis, uh, you know, in terms of human resources. And here we have healthcare professionals that are going to be wanting to return back to the workplace to hopefully contribute to making our situation in healthcare better. Uh, but they're going to be forced to stay home. Uh, because uh, they can't find uh, they can't find any childcare, so you know I, I, I'm I'm not being dismissive of things that the government have done in terms of I, I think they've put in a new pay grid I believe for early childhood educators. I'm not I haven't actually seen what that pay grid exactly looks like and if it goes far enough. Um, I think they're looking at putting more people and encouraging more people to get into the field of, um, of early education and care and so on. Um, so, you know, I realize there's no silver bullet for, for any of these things, but I, I just want to put it out there that it continues to be a huge issue for many people in my district and certainly people across the province. And, you know, it's, it's certainly from a social point of view, but also from an economic point of view. Because, uh, you know, there's many people, which are, are primarily women, not, not in all cases. Things are changing, of course, for the better. Um, but, um, but there are a lot of people, and, and like I say, primarily women, who uh, have a lot to contribute to our economy, uh, but uh, are finding themselves unable to get back to work. Look, there's a lot to it. It's one thing, and I do think it's important for us to uh, adjust the pay structure for early childhood educators. When we talk about the importance of the work they do, uh, helping and dealing with our most vulnerable citizens, same thing can be said for home care workers on the other end of the scale with seniors. So I haven't seen that new grid yet, but that is important. We've got to talk about the training for early childhood educators as well. Then, you know, as you, I think, started the conversation, $10 a day is a good one, is a good thing. But accessible uh, accessibility to a space is not following suit. So there's a big difference between regulated and unregulated. The massive problem that parents are finding now with the inability to find a daycare spot is for toddlers. That's the problem that I've, I hear more and more about. Me too. You know, as opposed too. to the four- or five-year-olds or what have you and some after-school right. spaces. It's the toddlers where parents are having a wicked old time trying to find a place. Correct. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's the younger children. Is, is I'm hearing that uh, more so than the uh, the older ones. Um, and 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 it is it is a huge issue that that really we need to figure out. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, home care and seniors because I kind of just wanted to quickly dovetail into that because this morning uh, that wasn't what I had intended I was intended on, on talking about childcare, but uh, just before I went on the air, uh, I had a gentleman in my district approach me and he asked me to bring up the issue of, uh, of home care. And I would say it's related, related in the sense that when we talk about, you know, our most vulnerable on both ends of the spectrum, whether it be children on one end or whether it be seniors, or in the case of this particular gentleman, it wasn't even a senior per se, it's that he has a, uh, an adult child, if you will. 
uh, with special needs who requires uh, home care. And uh, like he's telling me, at least that uh, right now he's only able to pay, I think he said like sixteen fifty an hour, uh, little to no benefits. And there hasn't been any increase, according to him, in like six years. So, you know, so here, here he is, you know, trying to get someone to take care of his vulnerable adult child. And it would be no different than if it was someone with a senior or mom or dad or whatever who required home care. Uh, and and it speaks to the value or should I say lack of value that we have been placing on looking after our most vulnerable on both ends of the spectrum. It's pretty sad when you can make more money working in a coffee shop than you can caring for the most vulnerable people uh, in our society. So uh, like the child care issue, uh, there has been some significant attention paid to uh, home care because it is part of our health care system. Sometimes people may not necessarily associate it as being part of our health care system because when we talk about health care, normally we're thinking about our, our the physical institutions, the hospitals, the clinics, the doctors and the nurses. But home care is absolutely a big part of it. And if we... And, and we have two choices. We can either provide services and programs to be able to allow people to live in their homes, or we can take those same people and put them in an institution and pay twice as much money, not to mention compromising their quality of life. Um, so, uh, you know, it, 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 it's something that definitely needs to be addressed. And so if we're going to be looking at wage grids and so on for early childhood educators, which I certainly agree with, uh, and other healthcare professionals, uh, part of that discussion has to be what uh, types of remuneration and benefits are being paid out to home care workers who are, again, looking after a most vulnerable, but doing so in a home setting rather than an acute care setting. And again, if we're going to use the health accord as the guiding principle for healthcare delivery, including uh, home care, it talks a lot about aging in place. And we don't really have formal programs for what people might refer to as the frail elderly. You know, a cost-benefit analysis also has to include the human ups, the human side, which is Absolutely. close to where you're familiar, uh, people you're familiar with in your own home. You know, there's even talk about a federal benefit for aging in place that might be coming. So says the seniors' advocate Susan Walsh. So. You know, institutionalizing people is a thing of the past. Now, some people are absolutely are going to need a long-term care bed for all the obvious reasons, but so many more, if we just were able to give them that a little additional bit of support required in, the, in their own home, they could stay there and have a much happier life in their own home. But, of course, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a different story and a different set of circumstances for one senior versus another. But we've got to figure this out. These numbers are right in front of us. I mean, we talk about aging demographic, what have you. It's fine to talk about building long-term care beds but it's much more complicated than that so the numbers are there and even if we're trying to plan for the future you know take it a step further with what we've been told would be the numbers of canadians living with dementia and what that requires what that looks like for uh for care whether that be in a long-term care facility and otherwise so there's a lot to these numbers and some people get quite mad at me when we talk about the agent demographic it's not to besmirch a senior my mother's a senior i hope to be a senior someday it's just trying to make sure we're prepared because if we're not and we do it at the 11th hour it becomes more expensive more chaotic and more people will be falling through the cracks. We can't have that. We just simply cannot. Uh, Paul, final thoughts quickly to you before I have to go. No, you're, you're absolutely right, Patty. And I've heard you say on your show numerous times, and I agree with you 100%, uh, about the cost of heads and beds, whether it be in a, uh, in, in a, a health care facility or whether it be in a penitentiary. 
the most expensive route we can go is putting people in institutions, whatever those institutions may be. If there's a way to keep them out of those institutions, not only does it uh, make for hopefully a, a happier, more familiar, more fulfilling life for those people, but uh, the other reality, which we always have to be cognizant of, is that there are huge cost savings as well to doing so. So these are these are, are issues that government need to figure out. And as I said, I will just conclude by saying once again, it's pretty sad when we place a higher value on working in a coffee shop than we do looking after our children or looking after our seniors, and that needs to change. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Paul Lane, the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Clayton, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yeah, this is Clayton. Uh, I'm in, introducing a class action suit. It's a First Nation Indigenous class action suit against the provincial government in the city of Cornerbrook. For what? For what? The flooding caused by the, the Confederation Drive, the old Trans-Canada, and the new Trans-Canada. In 2005, the Bay New Plan report was paid for and done by the city of Cornerbrook. In the report, it states quite clearly that provincial government and the city never made any provisions for runoffs. Our house has been flooded with 25 years of sewer in our bedrooms. We, our property is completely flooded now. Our house is coming down. We spent two years sleeping on the kitchen floor for a safe escape route from our home. The public trustee in 21 hired someone to do the roof, and he wasn't qualified. They lied to Occupation Health and Safety, and Occupation Health and Safety tried to cover up for them. Then in May, someone from the public trustee's office stole my mother and I's identity and phoned Light and Power. There was two Light and Power people on our roof illegally, said that a demented person with UTI and sedated from long-term called in and said she had construction work done on the roof and sparks was coming out. My house is completely destroyed. The neighbor up above us who joined onto our property uh, in 2000 or 2020, well, he flooded the whole property. His house got flooded on the main floor two, uh, two winters ago. The house directly behind him five months ago, their basement apartment got flooded. Right now, I have an email. It's called Clayton. No, sorry. It's called City, C-I-T-Y-G-O-V-T, 23 at Hotmail.com. Anyone with flooding issues caused by this from Confederation Drive, the old Transcan, and the new highway can join. They have to send their name, contact information, and their story of claim. Do you have a lawyer? Uh, huge. Uh, on both sides of West Valley Road, all the properties are flooded. The golf course is flooded. And the provincial government and the city only protected two people. One across the street, the last house up, who got it done for free, and the apartment building just two doors down from me. They put a catch basin in the backyard to catch water with no root to it. We've been sleeping on a kitchen floor now for over two years. We've been using commodes in the living room for two years. We have been physically, medically, mentally, and financially abused, and the healthcare system and the uh, adult protective services and the public trustee blamed the financial abuse on us. My mother and I was removed twice without a warrant, twice without investigation under adult protective services, and we- Just hold on a second, Clayton. Just hold on a second. What yeah. do you mean your mother-in-law was removed? Removed from where, your home? Re- yes, removed from her home. And both lawyers for adult protective services that lied to the Supreme Court in the family division. If you remember, I was on your radio a, few, uh, a while back with Clayton's law. 
which will give a Supreme Court justice in a family division trial the right to appoint an amicus curiae. Well, you have to add post-traumatic stress syndrome to that, too. I spoke with the B.C. Law Society uh, in December. They said, your Clayton's law has to be a federal law. It's like it in every province. Anyone who's in a family division trial who's being accused of, of abuse hasn't got a leg stand out. It legal aid misrepresents you, obstructed justice, obstructed justice during proceedings, stole documents from us, and two legal aid lawyers abused us. One of them was the area director in Stephenville who actually interrogated me on the phone as if I was a witness. She said, do you realize you have to call your wife back on the stand? I said, no problem. She said, why? I said, the abuse is quite visual. My wife may lose her toes. I, on February yeah. 8th this year, I went to hospital early in the morning by ambulance. I was even refused to be treated or registered. Last year, on okay. May, May the 5th, I went to the uh, – I got food poisoning from the food bank. May the 6th, after Newfoundland Labrador Housing came and did a false report, they claimed that I had leaked the pipe in my house, which I didn't. Uh, the manager at Newfoundland Labrador Housing refused to come back when it rained. He said we had leak- if I had leaky pipe, my house would have been filled up by now. After he left, the soil moved underneath the house again. The sump pump kicked in and blew the sewer all over the bathroom downstairs. that was already engulfed in mold. Okay, hold on a second, Clayton. Uh, before I have to go, so do you have a lawyer or anyone else in this proposed class action suit? We have a law firm lined up, but we have to get the stories first. And right now, I, I have an email. It's called citygovgovt23 uh, at hotmail.com, and I'm getting uh, quite the responses. One lady up there behind the corner of Plaza has been flooded 40 years by the water from the new highway. All the neighborhood in, in my area, Highland Avenue, every one of them had 40 to 50 years of water problems. It's a nightmare we're in. We lost our insurance in 2013, and, of course, Western Health and Adult Protective Services and the public trustee blamed us for the financial difficulty, and the ex-creamer arranged for free home care in 2018. The abuse we have encountered is incredible. On December 25th, they claimed that my mother-in-law fell as line term out of the bed. We were notified on the 27th. When we got over there, all we got was lies from the nurse and nursing assistant. Okay. A non-medical transport unit showed up with mother. She was covered in bruises, head to toe. I only got my phone out. I got one photograph, and this is what the attendant said. Well, that was a wasted trip again. The x-ray and CAT scan don't work at the hospital. So that means they took her twice, between the 25th and 27th. On the 28th, they wanted us to sign a do not resuscitate and have her cremated. I am very smart medically. I phoned the RNC, and I recorded it. I phoned the uh, security at the line term and recorded it and asked for the nurse's station to call me back. Okay, she okay, Clayton, I'm just going to have to jump in here because I have to go. But if you have any sort of update where, indeed, you do have a lawyer moving forward with proposing, try to get a class action certified, then we can tackle that again. But good luck and keep me in the loop. We need to advertise because we have to get the story first. I understand. But, yeah, and keep me in the loop when you have an update. Yeah, well, this, the email is citygovgovt23 at hotmail.com. And I'm getting quite the response, Patty. I appreciate your time. And right now, uh, right now, Clayton. March the 24th, we have no place to live. Me and Debbie's kid on the street. Well, I hope that doesn't end up being the case. But let me know what happens. And keep me in the loop yeah, on the on right the class right. action. Clayton. It's horrible. It is, and it sounds horrible, but please do keep me in the loop. But thanks for your time this morning. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take that break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. George, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How many uh, private uh, health care clinics do we have in Newfoundland? I don't know, Craig. How many? Uh, we have uh, Dr. Um, Todd Young has a private practice, correct? Every doctor with their own clinic is, in essence, a subcontractor and is indeed a private offering, and they bill MCP. Uh, Dr. Hagee has his own clinic? His own Whatever doctor practice. has their own clinic is a form of a private clinic because they are subcontractors, they work for themselves, and they bill MCP for their service. And how many of these private clinics actually take our doctors and nurses away from our public system? They're, they're part of the public system. You cannot have a private and public system yeah, they're, using they're, the same doctors. They're private independent contractors that work in the public system, but they they manage their own affairs. Like, for instance, their overhead costs and all the, the, the all that's required to keep their doors open is covered by them, but they're in the public system in that they bill MCP for their health care services. Premier Fury has Team Broken Earth. Do you know how many doc, Newfoundland doctors and nurses are associated with that organization. Uh, plenty have rotated in and out over the years. Yes, so they're also taking our nurses and doctors away from the servicing our citizens. They choose to do it. It's a choice, yes, but they're taking our doctors and nurses away from our pri from our public system. They choose we to offer some of their expert program. Seven hundred and fifty registered nurses. We need in Newfoundland and Labrador. How many doctors are missing from Newfoundland and Labrador right now? Well, I'm not sure what that means. We have so many doctors that we need to have a sufficient health care system in Newfoundland and Labrador. How many doctors are required in Newfoundland and Labrador, and how many do we actually have in Newfoundland and Labrador? There's more doctors here than ever before. Uh, last year, we had a net loss of seven. 122 left for whatever reason. They retired or moved elsewhere. There was 115 new licenses that were granted. But here's the trick. Not every doctor may indeed take on a full patient roster, for instance, as a family doctor. Some only want to work locums or work at walk-in clinics, uh, do what they need to do to establish uh, hospital privileges. So I don't think there's a one defined number that will f uh, fully satisfy our needs because there's a difference between how many specialists we need in one discipline or another. There's a difference in how many family doctors we need to satisfy the 136,000 people in the province that don't have one. So I don't think there's a, a specific answer to that question. Yeah, I don't think everybody needs to have a doctor. You only need a doctor when you actually are sick, pretty much. So, I mean, we should be able to walk into any hospital, and any doctor that's there should be able to take us on as a patient for that moment in time. Yeah, that's not really how it works, though. Yeah. You know, so people do I need know a it's doctor. Not how it works, but that this is a system that could work. No, not really. You know, people need a doctor, I think, because what happens when we don't is we see emergency rooms over capacity and emergency wait times longer than ever before, which may have been satisfied if they were able to just make an appointment with their GP. So I think people do need a doctor. Now, you don't need to see that doctor all the time. Of course you don't. Some people maybe go a little bit more frequently than they really need to, but people do need to have access to a doctor, no doubt about it. Okay, so right now we have 181 clinics, is it? Something like that. Labrador. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we heard the other day uh, the minister saying that $3,200 for a 24-hour shift for a doctor. 
So they're making approximately $1.16 million a year. No, doctors aren't making that much. Doctors Doctors aren't making that much here in the province. There's a sunshine list that you can find out there for doctors and how much money they make, and it's not that. Um, But that number... I'm sure that if I traveled around in a plane, yes. That number was for... Uh, doctors working in an emergency room setting in Bonavista. That's that number that you're using. There. Yes, yes, thirty-two hundred. Yeah, it was uh, the other one was eighteen hundred dollars. So we're paying our doctors pretty good, I think. We are. I think if we went around the world and we offered somebody what we're paying our doctors, they would happily come to Newfoundland, Labrador, when they're probably making only a quarter or half of what we're paying. But we are doing that. We are trying that. We're not trying it. If we, if we were trying it, we would have doctors and nurses coming in every day. Why do you say that so uh, so freely? Because if, I th- if uh, once there's, again, there's, 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 there's schools all over the world that are that, that are uh, having um, their nurses and doctors right finishing their programs, and they're waiting, looking for work. Right? I mean, we got to be able to take our young children. And, for, and even in high school, if they want to get into the medical system, we're going to give them part-time jobs. What? So that they get used to our system. We're going to pay for all their education. We're going to host them here so that it's an incentive for them to stay. What we have is 20, 30 years of our government telling us that they're going to fix the system, and they're only making it worse by taking our current doctors and nurses out of our public system and putting them into private systems. That's not really what's happening. They make more money off us. That's not really what's happening. But, no. Anyway, well, that's Craig. That's how I see it. Well, I listen to your radio station, and that's what I hear. That's what I'm making up in my mind. So well, you prove me different. Well, I just told you how, you know, for instance, a family doctor works in their own private clinic. You know, whether or not they have a roster of three doctors with a full patient roster and billing MCP, but they are indeed, in essence, private contractors, subcontractors to the government. They make their own decisions about how many patients they see. They make their own decisions about how often the clinic is open. So they have a lot of say. So it is not necessarily the what people refer to as private health care. Private health care would be in a setting where I pay that doctor out of pocket for whether be an MRI to a, a technician, or I pay for a surgery like we're seeing happen uh, more and more in the province of Ontario. So that's what privatization really means, which comes with a, a few downsides. Number one, if a private doctor is able to make more money in their own private setting without billing MCP or OHIP in Ontario, then they're just taken out of the public system, as you suggest. So there's already lots of private offerings in healthcare in this country. There's some, uh, once again, complicated problems. For instance, they can choose to see whatever type of patient they want. So they might t- uh, turn away someone with very complex needs, and that person ends up in the public system. So there are issues there. I mean, dental care is private in this country. There's lots of blood collection and stuff that's done in a private fashion. Many GPs are, in essence, uh, subcontractors, private operators. But that's not really what people are talking about when they talk about privatization. Uh, do me a favor, though. Uh, be honest with Fonts or whoever else is producing when you, when you call the show. No, that's it, because we're going to say goodbye. But be honest with Fonts when you call before you come on like this again, okay, Craig? George I think that's is only my fair. middle name, Patty. I use my first name, but you won't let me on your show, so I use my middle name, so I'm not lying. Well, Craig, and you've had your time. I appreciate it. I hope you're doing well. Take care of yourself. Okay, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Morning to you. Uh, you need to sit, sit back and have a good cup of coffee for yourself there now. No problem. Very interesting. Very interesting show you have on the go. 
Patty, I heard one of your callers before, I believe his name was Roy, if the memory serves me correctly. He called about the, uh, excuse me, the number of um, harbor and river seals, I think he called them, uh, that are up in the areas. Uh, I think it was, was it Long Harbor, Patty? I think he was calling from that area, maybe. I, I think so, uh, but I think he made reference to what he's hearing from his friends in other parts of the province as well. Yeah, and and that is that the, uh, the you can actually see the, uh, the uh, seal population up in the rivers and at the mouths of rivers, and they're just feasting on what salmon are left there. And, I mean, that's what seals do. You can't really call that. That's what they do. But, Patty, it motivated me to call because, because there's some very exciting news happening in the industry, in the, uh, in the uh, you know, ocean biodiversity and, uh, and conservation efforts going on in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, which affects us. It's all worldwide. But this week, earlier this week, I think it was, the United Nations Convention on Conservation of Biodiversity and about 200, uh, 200 countries involved passed rules to uh, change things in how we manage that system. Ready? Uh, and uh, what it's going to have a huge impact on Canada, but Newfoundland and Labrador in particular. Uh, you may recall, Patty, these, this whole initiative came from this COP, series of COP conferences, the conferences of, um, of parties. Yep. You may recall that. Oh, of course. And, uh, yeah, and they, uh, they came up now and they, they, they think that, uh, you know, it's an exciting, something has got to be done. I don't think anybody will dispute that uh, we, we've done a, a fairly poor, very poor job of managing our ocean resources and and conservation and things like that. At least I feel that we have. So I'm all for positive change. My concern is uh, that, um, uh, you know, having said it's a great idea, my concern is that what's happening in Ottawa in our little piece of that 200-country pie, uh, we're transferring, or we appear to be, I think we are, based on the knowledge I've gained, we're transferring control of those ocean resources, Patty, uh, away from fisheries, which is probably a good idea given the poor record they have on it, uh, to third parties, and uh, and they're going to be implementing rules and regulations that govern inshore harvesters and coastal people overall, without any meaningful consultation. And indeed, the provinces out there. But Mike, give us give us an example of what you mean by that. Well, what I mean is that currently uh, you're you're hearing recently from the fish harvesters unions and representative associations like C and others that, uh, you know, uh, their, their allocations of products are just being stopped. Like you have mackerel and herring and other species uh, TFO say, no, the, the science is not there. Therefore you can't fish any. And uh, we're not going to give you anything. And by the way, in previous years, we used to let you pay for your license and keep it. And when the stock came back, uh, we would, uh, we would, you know, entertain dividing a portion of it back to you if, as an inshore harvester. Well, they're not doing that anymore. They've stopped that now, and they're moving those stocks to a bucket of stocks, different species that are going on in Ottawa, my sources tell me. And these are going to be, within the next two years probably, transferred to the management of a structure they're putting into place right now in partnerships to be managed primarily by Indigenous Aboriginal peoples, in Canada, and that's because Canada has an obligation and a duty 
to compensate Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples for the way they were treated. So one of the things that's going to be turned over to them is going to be management of fish stocks. So before, where you would go get your food, as bad as it was, to the Department of uh, Fisheries and Oceans, now you will have to apply to a third party. That third party, that management structure, Newfoundland and Labrador has little, very little, very limited information. The Department of Fisheries will, re- will refer you, Patty, to the Department of Conservation. And, I mean, these, quite frankly, they don't know whether they're punched or bored on the issues of fisheries. But that's happening now, and it'll be done before we even know it, what's going to happen. So it's exciting that we're getting into new ways of doing things. I'm all for that. I'm all for conservation. Who is this I'm third party? By the Who is this third, the party? third party? It hasn't yet to be named, but it will be a third party uh, managed and directed by Aboriginal and in- Indigenous peoples in Canada. And I've got no problem with that, but I don't know how much experience they have in the deep oceans. They're really going to be managing in partnership with the government of Canada uh, marine protected areas and stock allocations and determining stocks. And this is all going on behind the scenes now with this COP business. And the provincial department says, oh, that's not us. That's the federal government of Canada. And the federal government of Canada, the Department of Fisheries, is saying, oh, oh, this is not us. The Fisheries Act is really going to be run now by the Department of Conservation and Environment. And, of course, that's Mr. Guillebeau, Stephen Guillebeau, former Greenpeace activist, and he's got with him a group of NGOs that he's funding who are all anti-seal hunt guys. Most of them are anti-seal hunt. They've been immeasurable damage to Newfoundland and Labrador by bringing in the European ban and all that kind of stuff. And they, they go so far as one of them goes so far, Oceana goes so far as to say, hey, seals don't eat fish. I mean, this guy's on tape for saying that. And yet, I, I think we all know the difference. Roy brought that to my mind this morning. Yes, indeed, they do eat fish. Uh, but the, these are the guys now that are part of a structure that's being put into place to manage what's happening. And this is not happening up front. These are not things you're getting out every day. This is happening and will be done before you know it's done. And, uh, and what disappoints me most of all is that the provincial government of Newfoundland and Labrador is sitting on it, but and it just seems to be sitting now. It's pathetic. It's just it's sitting back and it's letting it happen. So the big fish companies, they're, they're partnering with the Aboriginal groups, these NGOs, because there's hundreds of millions of dollars, literally hundreds of millions of dollars in conservation and management uh, biodiversity coming out to all these NGOs and researchers and writers. And what they do is they, they write a report suitable to what they want to get. Yep. So you're telling me that Oceana is going to have a say in establishing a total allowable catch for one species or another? Eventually, yes. That's my opinion. It is. And it is something that's going on right now is that uh, if you take a look at them, they're up in the uh, Oceana is one of them. There's not only, they're not the only ones. These anti-seal hunt protesters, particularly like the International Fund for Animal Welfare, who did so much damage, their leadership is now in a thing called Canadian Climate Institute. And, uh, and they showed up in a glorious picture a little while ago with Bernard Davis over in Egypt. And, and Davidson said, oh, we're really looking forward to working with you guys and everybody else, not realizing that these were the same people that devastated the seal hunt and markets, and, and, and which is the big issue that we have with seals. It's not products, it's markets. 
Uh, and yeah, they're they're really going to be there. But it's all happening very quietly. It's not a concocted story. It's not all some wild dreams. This is going on. And uh, and COP is going to be good, but it depends on who comes out with the power and the control. And who's looking after the people of rural Newfoundland and Labrador? Because I assure you, what I've seen so far right now, the union is trying to look after itself. i got no problems with that. That's what union do. They're like companies. That's what they do. Uh, but uh, I don't think anybody's going to be looking after what's going to happen to the benefits, you know, the billion dollars a year that we're getting right now. Those big companies, they'll still, still get it because they'll sublet the licenses from Aboriginal groups and go out and catch offshore. Anyway, I, I appreciate the time. I'll have a little closer look at that because, you know, sometimes you need someone to put these thoughts forward about what goes on behind the scenes because the vast majority of what happens inside government goes on behind the scenes and behind closed doors. So I appreciate you yeah. bringing it up this morning, Mike. It's a pleasure, Patty. Thank you very much. You have a great day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, break time. When we come back, we're going to see if we can figure out some of the confusion surrounding a bunch of issues in the ambulances. But we'll start with Cape Royal. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Loyola, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you this morning? Very well. How about you? Good, sir. Just calling in response to the minister that was on open line yesterday uh, regarding the announcement you had for the uh, Fairland district in regards to a rapid response unit in the area. You know, it's uh, no, and that's good news. If that helps, then fine. But, you know, we had a lot of questions then after, you know, he called just he called me just before he's on open line, just let me know I was making an announcement. So, you know, not a lot of time to ask any questions because he was going on open line. But, you know, some of the questions that I'm getting for the residents, where is it going to be? Is it going to be stationed somewhere? Is it going to be roving between, uh, say, La Manche and Kappa Hayden? Where is it going to be stationed? You know, is it where is it going to come from? And, you know, do you wait for that to come from Holyrood or St. John's or, you know, that that's the kind of questions that I got from, you know, from people yesterday afternoon. But Loyola, didn't he say that the uh, the ambulance with that critical care paramedic will be stationed on the southern shore? He did. But like, is it going to be rovering? Is it stationed? I asked him it was going to be stationed. No, it's not going to be stationed anywhere. You know, that was a quick question that I got to ask, so I didn't really get to, you know, get uh, – he was going on open line, so I couldn't get to talk to him. So there are some of the questions that we need answered. Is it going to be stationed somewhere? Is it going to be in Fairland? Is it going to be sitting in a parking lot waiting to respond to a call? They're the kind of questions that people are asking, and they need to know. And, you know, when we speak about uh, putting out uh, public service announcements, I was only referring to the – Ambulance. I'm not referring to every ambulance when it goes a red alert to let us know, but we have an ambulance in Cape Royal, and he has trouble to staff that ambulance, and that's that's fair. We have trouble to staff it, that's fair. But the people in the area should know if it's not staffed. That was my point. Not to let us know when every ambulance from somewhere else is, is not available or whatever. Just in that area is what I was trying to get across, and that's the message I'm trying to get across, that if the ambulance is there and they can't staff it, then they should be letting the people in the district know that they're not there. 
Well, you know, that's, that's, that's the, where I'm doing. It's the point I was trying to make as well, because I know exactly what you meant. Because if we have an ongoing issue, as opposed to pretending that every 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 single time that there's an interruption or an ambulance is in a six-hour offload problem, there's a PSA required. No, no, no. If this has been happening continually for uh, months, then maybe folks in the area could just make their own decisions about whether or not they're going to wait for an ambulance or hop in the car or do whatever they want. Because if you think that the ambulance is coming in 25 minutes and 85 minutes later it shows up, you should have been able to understand that, okay, this is very likely the outcome here when I dial 911. So I was a little bit confused with his pushback regarding uh, uh, the requirement or the need or the possibility to use a public service announcement because I think it would be helpful because people didn't know. They had no earthly idea what was going on. They see the ambulance parked on that driveway in Cape Royal, even though I guess the buried in snow was a bit of a giveaway. But they see the ambulance, and then they call, and they wonder, how come that ambulance is moving? Maybe we should give them the information. Right, exactly, Patty. And that is exactly the point. And you got the understanding of the district and where it's to and where the ambulance sits. And that's what I'm trying to get across. I mean, just putting Band-Aids on this stuff is not going to help the people on the southern shore. I mean, we need to have the service there. The people need to know. And that's what I'm point I'm trying to get across. And, you know, we're not, we just need that taken care of. You know, for people, I got two emails after yesterday or the day before when I was on open line from people in my district. There were horrifying emails, Patty, you know, with results that weren't that great. And, you know, could the ambulance help? We don't know that. But, you know, to sit there for an hour, an hour and a half, when somebody, one of your loved ones are lying on the floor or they're out on the ground, then that's pretty scary. And an hour and a half is a long time. So just we just need to know if they're not in the area, we need to know what our wait time is. And if there's something that we can do to change that, then that's what our message is. You know, that's where we need to be. And uh, that's what I've been asking for, right? That, and not to say when an ambulance is not over in Holy Road that you let us know. No, the ambulance in our area, if you have trouble staffing, that's, you know, that's, that's certainly a concern. But if you have trouble staffing, then we need to know in the district if that's, if that's where it is. I mean, this government has been eight years looking at ambulance issues. As I said the other day, I'm only three and a half years here. But it's been an issue since I got in here, and it's been an issue for the last eight years. So it's time for the government to get on with this and start making the right decisions for the people in my district and all across the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And then it's some of the contradictory statements or some of the unknowns. Like we spoke to uh, Monique, who was working on the Smith's ambulance out in Whitburn, and she says that the allegations of you know, uh, not living up to the contractual obligations was not true. And then you hear about the story in Cape Royal. The minister says that uh, Bob Fewer gave him a six-month notice two and a half months ago. Bob Fewer says he never gave any notice. So which is it? Because yeah, that's right. yeah. not only no the problem. reality of what people are dealing with, but when you have the either lack of information or contradictory information, it's certainly less than helpful. Oh, no, there's no question, Patty. It's, you know, it's, and, you know, if he makes that statement, I mean, I never said that. That's, that's the minister saying that. And, uh, you know, I knew that the ambulance there because... He got to understand the district. There's an ambulance service in Trapassi, and there's an ambulance service, what they call Fairland, but it's stationed in Cape Royal. So that's the difference. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here confused sometimes when they're saying that, and, you know, I, I, never, I never knew of it. So, you know, I'm just saying that, you know, they got issues staffing, then, you know, that's certainly a problem right across this province across the country. But, you know, we need to know when they're not there, and people need to know in the district that, you know, that the uh, ambulance is not there so that they can make, if there's a decision that can be made to help this better, then that's what they need to know. Fair enough. Appreciate the uh, time, Loyola. Thank I you. I really do. Thanks again, Betty. I do appreciate your time on this issue. Take care. Okay, thanks. All right, bye-bye. Loyola Driscoll is the PC member for Fairland. How are we doing on the phone, fans? When we come back, time to speak with you at the topic. Well, that's up to you. Don't go away.
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Art, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Very good. Not too bad, sir. Good. Uh, first time caller. Welcome I, to the show. I just want to make a comment on uh, a piece of news I heard there this morning on the radio. The uh, mayor of uh, Bonavista claimed that uh, <clears throat> Bonavista services more, the clinic in Bonavista services more people than our clinic here in Whitburn. <clears throat> it's time for him to get his facts straight. Yeah, I mean, people use the number 2,000. But if you talk about the, the catchment area, it's probably more like 20,000. Patty, there's at least, I'd say, three to 3,500 residents here in Whitburn alone. You know? So where is getting those numbers? I mean, the, the clinic here services right from, well, you're, you're familiar with the Whitburn area anyway, Briggs Junction to uh, Combo Chance to Long Harbor, all down the shore, Greens Harbor, Old Shop, Dillo, Green, uh, White Way. I mean, New, uh, Norman's Cove, Chapel Arm. You're talking, you're talking at least eighteen to twenty thousand people. You know, so where where he's getting his numbers, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm not so sure how much influence a mayor would have on these types of decisions or moves, <laughs> because, for instance, down in Bonavista, one of the callers yesterday says that. You know, why can't we, for instance, establish an urgent care center while we try to recruit for a full-time emergency room, much like has been provided to Whitburn? So, I mean, every region wants their services, especially ones that you, you lose. You know, not every region that doesn't have an emergency room is going to get one all of a sudden, but the communities that have a big catchment area and have had emergency room services for decades are now losing them. That's where the problem rises. Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we've had this one, well... I'm I'm uh, I'll turn 70 years old next Tuesday. I was born in in the old Markland Hospital, and I mean, ever since this this clinic opened over here, I, I I've been back and forth there, my, all my family and the whole nine yards. And I mean, there's uh, there was needed then, there's needed now. So. You know, I, I'm pretty sure, Art, that we are seeing the beginning of some real big transformations in where one clinic or one offering is or another. Because once you lose something, and this goes for everything, not just healthcare, once you lose something, it's hard to get it back. So if an emergency room all of a sudden is replaced by an urgent care uh, center, and then the backfill might be some critical care paramedics as opposed to uh, primary care paramedics or whatever the proper terminology is, if they replace, say, for instance, Minister Osborne uses these numbers in Whitburn. So urgent care could probably deal with some 80 to 90% of patients that would have presented themselves at the emergency room. And so with a critical care paramedic to be able to, you know, do some of the trauma-related work as they make their way to St. John's or wherever they're headed, that that's how they're going to try to backfill it. So I think some of these changes we're seeing, this first ever urgent care center is not going to be the last. Oh, just no doubt about that. I agree with you 100%. But, I mean, like I said, we've, we've had our clinic here for years. Uh, I think a lot of it, uh, my last comment, uh, Patty, uh, 
I think a lot of it uh, is uh, political. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. But what exactly do you mean by that? Because that's important, because politics is always going to play a role in what kind of services are where in the province, whether it be talking about asphalt or anything else. Yeah. No. I, I, I won't mention no names, but uh, the, the member we got, uh, I won't say a lot, but it was just that she don't visit Whipburn very often. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, Patty. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Art. Not a problem. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, is it about all of the committee work and subcommittee work was done regarding the health accord and the 10-year plan, or are we going to see fly-by-night Band-Aid solutions to very complicated problems and, you know, some of it, I think, is a little bit more complicated than maybe some of us give it credit for. Like, the, the issue regarding simply, uh, simple shortages. You know, like there was a reference earlier by a caller that if we, you know, if we go and look for doctors and nurses, we should be able to get them no problem. But that hasn't been the case for almost any province in the country. I mean, I try to scan newspapers from across the country just to see what they're talking about and see what kind of overlap issues are out there. And to a man and to a woman, they're saying the exact same things. I mean, look no further than some of the incentives that different provinces have put forward, and they're coming here, coming here looking for our healthcare professionals. And those examples are very clear. Like we had the conversation one time, I think it was about uh, radiation therapists or respiratory therapists or technicians, where the province of Nova Scotia came in, offered them a signing bonus, and they were paying them 20% more to move to Nova Scotia. So not only are we poaching healthcare workers from province to province and pitting province against province, but they're all doing the same thing by trying to go to different countries looking for doctors. We really need to know what kind of uh, success we're having. Uh, the minister did not have uh, specific numbers about how many doctors from Ireland have been made an offer or how many nurses in India. But we need to know because the other provinces and other countries are doing the same thing. In Ireland, I read a story in the Irish Times where Irish doctors who are leaving are choosing to go to Australia more than any other country. So there's a lot to that. Anyway, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number one. George, you're on the air. Yeah, George from uh, Gamble. Welcome <coughs> to the show, George from Gamble. I was, uh, listened to your show ye yesterday. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, there was a guy on there with about a uh, uh, backup water and sewer in his basement. That that was in Bay Roberts because of the lift station isn't big enough for the area and the residents. Yep. Yeah, and uh, sort of wondering if the town was helping them out or what. What's happening in your community, sorry? In my my case? Yeah? Yeah. It's a little over a year ago now. But I had a... a or the town had a backup here, water and sewer. And, of course, the most were coming to my basement. It was flowing, I'd say, for about two hours. And it ended up that it cost me just about $5,000 the sewer run and take the subfloor out and get the stink and everything out of the basement and the town won't do a thing to, to help it. And what caused it? Uh, backup. Water and sewer backup in their main line. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, whether there was roots in the uh, pipe or there was a lift station concern like the no, one no, the, about Bay Roberts. Not even with the lift station, but there was a talk and it's only a hearsay that the day before 
and and then in the night that the the, the line blocked up was that the town council was digging along by the pipe or something and ruptured the pipe. Now that was just a hearsay and I I don't know. But uh anyway the children they wouldn't they wouldn't do nothing for me. And like I said it cost me just about five thousand dollars for the two running and take the subfloor out and uh, get the mess cleaned up in the basement. Yeah, anybody who's ever experienced the backup, whether it be of clean water or sewer water, has gone through a arduous ordeal. I mean, we've been through it, unfortunately, in our house, and we never really got to the bottom of exactly what happened and why it happened. But the issue, I'm still trying to figure out, uh, try to help Buddy out in Bay Roberts, uh, but your issue there, you know, if indeed it was because the province or someone else was doing some sort of work and some pipe got ruptured or whatever the implications are, it would be helpful to know. But, of course, you'd have to chase them to the ends of the earth to get that kind of info. Yeah. So is it all satisfied, all rectified now, George? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because they still won't, won't do anything about it. I wrote two letters to them and contacted some of the, the councillors, and apparently the town is not going to sue and do anything, so there's only one thing left for to do now is to sue them and go and get a lawyer and harm in court. Sometimes that's what it takes, and that's what they know will be the end result if they wait long enough and push people far enough that eventually they're just going to take them on in court, which of course comes with a massive big price tag, and they got more money than we do. Yeah. I appreciate the time, George. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you very much. Take care of yourself. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, today might be a good day to get on. Is it fun? So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just very quickly, we talked about what's going on in other provinces, you know, looking at best practices and dealing with some of the looming issues facing Canadians. And, like, you know, we talk about some of the big proposals here, whether it be for wind to hydrogen and work on the Beta Nord project and all the rest of it. When do we even have enough of the trace people to take it on? And the answer is no. Now, we could take on one or two of them, but for the big line items, is that even possible? Well, you, we, even if you look at the immigration numbers and the targets that they're trying to set, not only for numbers, but the kind of skills that they're trying to attract to the country, one is in the construction world. So a curious story coming from the uh, province of Ontario it says that uh, Doug Ford and his government are now going to allow grade uh, 11 students to start their apprenticeships. Why? Because they see a looming shortage of jobs in those fields. And so consequently, to get more youth into the trades, they're going to allow them to start their apprentices, uh, apprenticeships in grade 11. You know, things like that are really quite interesting. And when we try to talk about preparing for the future and the types of jobs that are going to need to be satisfied, Having that start in high school before you have to graduate high school and then try to weave your way through what you're going to do in post-secondary, if that's your choice of life, is maybe we started a little bit earlier. Because at that point, 
you move quicker into your red seal. You move quicker into a more secure job future. So what do you make of that move made in the province of Ontario? Grade 11 students starting their apprenticeships at that point versus after graduation. I think that's a, an interesting one to say the least. Okay, let's see if there's something new on line number two. Bruno, you're on the air. Bruno? Hi, can you hear me? I can't now. Go ahead. Oh. Uh, thanks for uh, letting me call. I just wanted to talk about uh, start with talking about health care and uh, the poaching that's going on interprovincially. It's uh, something that strikes home pretty close to home to me. Unfortunately, it's, uh, it seems that our desperate provincial health care systems are poaching from other provincial governments, and the net result is that all of us lose. Uh, if I can touch on a personal story, uh, I had a young, very excellent surgeon that performed a cancer surgery on me, and uh, I needed uh, an inguinal hernia attended to, and uh, he expressed a great deal of frustration that he couldn't get operating room time to do anything except cancer surgeries. And uh, by luck, I ended up getting my uh, inguinal hernia done by another surgeon. And I bumped into him uh, when I was there about to go into the OR. Uh, He's moving. He, He came to Cape Breton because his wife was a native of Sydney and they wanted to set up here and uh, have a practice which would have served our provincial government and all of the residents very well. He's a skilled surgeon. I'm sure his wife was skilled as well. In frustration, uh, he gave up and is finding another province to go to or another country to go to. I haven't gotten any other details. But that's what's going on. You know, I had my original family doctor move to the U.S. because uh, he got a more lucrative deal there. uh, And his wife got a job in the hospital so that his life worked much better. And I couldn't blame him for that. But as a result, I spent five or six years as a single parent with two young children, not able to find a family doctor. So that's the plight that many of us are in. And uh, doctors are being poached from one province to another. And, uh, you know, our, our whole system suffers as a result. And there's so many reasons why a doctor might choose to do one thing or another in the province that they live in or choose to uh, greener pastures on the other side because they all have their own unique circumstances. Some of them might be lured by money. Some of them might be the opportunity to work in a world-class, modern, brand-new facility. Some of them might be uh, amenities for their uh, their children. Some of them might be for opportunities for their spouse. So there's just so much to this that if we simply say uh, all we have to do is pay them more, then we're probably missing a lot of really key components of their world because if you ask doctors, they'll say, Money's great, but I'm burnt to a crisp. A bit more of a balance in my life is what I'm looking for, and I think that's probably more popular than I simply need more money. Well, it is, and that's basically what happened to my first family doctor decades ago. Uh, He ended up making more money than he was making here, working part-time, 
so that he had more time to attend to the, the farming that he also enjoyed doing. So he, he was able to do his farming. His wife got a job. He got more money. And why wouldn't you move to Ohio? And who could blame them? And, and like you point out, uh, all doctors have those issues, and it works out to those uh, life issues that are frustrating them. Uh, he's not the first one that I've heard grumble like this and uh, pack up and move, as well as my family doctor. It's been going on for decades. And unfortunately, I can't see the end of it. And many of us, as we're approaching our later years, need uh, more and more medical services. You know, I didn't see a doctor for decades, didn't think I'd ever need one until all of a sudden you get hit over the head. Uh, at, at least, Bruno, at least in that circumstance, you knew why the person left. But, you know, like in this province, I don't even know how much we do in the way of an exit interview, right? So even last year, if there was 122 doctors left, whether that means they retired or they moved, and for whatever reason, we don't know. So unless we can know exactly why someone has left, it's hard to uh, fundamentally address whatever problem they, that person experienced that led them to leave. If you're retired, you're retired. That's all we can do about it. But if it was because you got a more lucrative offer or it was anything else under the sun that made, whether it be Ohio or British Columbia, be a more attractive option, we have to understand exactly what happens so that we can deal with it. But at this point, I don't even think we do, Uh, not to the extent that we should. Well, I agree with you completely. And it was only by accident that uh, my doctor had a chat with me just before he left. Many of his other patients didn't find out until after he was gone which is the case for many of the doctors in Newfoundland and Labrador, I'm sure, as well as here. Uh, but let me just finish by uh, saying, uh, finish by changing the subject slightly. And uh, I'd like to quote a person who won a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, I think, two years ago. Uh, and the quote was, change is coming whether you like it or not. And uh, it was from the youngest person ever to receive a Nobel Prize, uh, uh, Greta Thunberg. She feels, I feel, and uh, many scientists feel that the oil uh, that's in the ground uh, has to stay in the ground if we're going to survive by a species, as a species. There's a great deal of excitement about uh, the oil and gas plays off Newfoundland Newfoundland and Labrador, but I have to remind you that it's you're never going to get to that resource. By the time that you begin to exploit it, the effects of climate change will continue to have escalated. More violent storms and threat of floods and loss of life will have happened. And finally, the world will have gotten the message that we've got to deal with climate change. That means stop burning oil and start using the free resources that we have. Newfoundland and Labrador is in a wonderful place to take advantage of that. If only they could find the politicians that would grab the brass rings and start using wind to the advantage of Newfoundland and Labradorians by setting them up just offshore and shipping the power inland, using that power to ship to Nova Scotia. And, you know, 
But Bruno, and there's also some realities that maybe don't get tapped into when we talk about whatever a transition looks like, a just transition or a, uh, an energy transition. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of the energy globally is driven by fossil fuels. Is there any realistic uh, thought out there that you could sh uh, shift as quick as that you'd like or Greta Thunberg li would like or many people in the world would like and not have not only economic devastation, but, you know, all of the everything that comes with these transitions. So if we're eighty percent, and you know, talk about commercial applications and industrial applications, there's currently nothing that can replicate some of them. So there's going to still be the use of fossil fuels for the foreseeable future until well, people try to fast track these transitions in some sort of manageable affair, because eighty percent is a lot to replace. Well, that's the beauty of uh, wind and. Uh, sun and uh, batteries that have now reached maturity, uh, that they're not massive investments in time and money, and they can be incrementally put to use. Uh, and it only costs in the millions or tens of millions for four or five megawatts that you can add onto your system as needed. Uh, you know, it may be time when the software problems continue to fail, that one needs to consider maybe forgetting about the Labrador Island link that may have been a bad investment. It's never going to work. And you can start solving the problem by shipping the energy that you need to Nova, that you promised to Nova Scotia here by using wind if, uh, w that you can rapidly deploy in yeah, a matter of... We're actually years. meeting our contractual obligation with uh, Nova Scotia at this moment in time. We're scrambling to do it, but it is being done. It's 11.32, Bruno. I'll give you 30 seconds before I have to go to the news. Well, I'm glad but that you're going to need more power there, and that can be met by these new technologies. You have to leave uh, those decadent technologies behind oil and gas and the false promises that they offer and you need to move into the future if newfoundland and labrador is going to have a successful uh future uh economic future and uh and it may be time to forget about the lil as as, as a, uh, an alternative uh, and start looking at shipping any power okay. that you get is shipping it through quebec yeah and into those markets uh, okay, Bruno, I, I understand. But, of course, uh, TD, Goldman Sachs, and the rest of the crowd, they don't care if we ever consume a single gigawatt of power from uh, Muskrat Falls. They want their money. Uh, appreciate the time. I'm off to the break for the newscast. Thank you. Take care. You too, Bruno. Bye-bye. All right, uh, break time. Don't go away. When we come back, we're talking hydroponics, long-term care, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the fellow behind Papa's Farm, and he's the co-founder of the newly established Canadian Hydroponic Association. That's Mackenzie Warford. Mackenzie, you're on the air. Good day, sir. How are you doing? Great today. You? Good, good. What's the weather like out there today? Uh, it is a bit overcast, pretty damp and chilly, but overall not too bad a day. It's not as bad as what it was during mid-February there with the minus 35s and the minus 40s like we had it, is it? 
That was, no, I, absolutely not. It was a wicked cold snap that we endured. But then we had a great weekend and not so bad all this week. And a bit of snow coming tomorrow, apparently. But nature of the beast, here we are in March. Yeah, so you can imagine that a hydroponic operator growing in a greenhouse made of plastic had a bit of fun during minus 40. Yeah, so just, you know, because I've been trying to pump the tires on hydroponics and the opportunities therein, but how is it working when you have those extremely cold temperatures? That's the beauty of research and development and the uh, vast amount of knowledge that's actually surrounding hydroponics that's not in Canada, but, you know, in other parts of the world, and that's that's what we capitalize on, so that way we are, we can afford to grow uh, efficiently and feasibly during the winter in those cold periods. So, um, me and my fellow uh, co-founder Dave have actually done some extensive upgrades to the greenhouse that uh, actually cut down on heating costs drastically. And so it's research and development like this that we would like some further support, so we can continue to do. And then we can supply growers all across Newfoundland and Canada with that equipment that will cut down on growing costs and stuff. So uh, at the end of the day, I survived. All my crops survived. It was minus 40 at the coldest peak at like 6 a.m. in the morning when we hit the coldest snaps. Actually, power would flash on and off. It was that cold. So the uh, backup generator was ready to go. And like I said, we pr- we uh, persevered through the cold environment. And it's just more proof in the pudding of the potential of hydroponics. Look, there's absolutely massive potential there. I think the number that pops into my head is that the value of uh, hydroponics in the United States is something like $9 billion is their economic <laughs> contribution. And in yeah. this country, it seems to be in its infancy. What do you think government doesn't know or understand about the the opportunity that is inside hydroponics? Well, you know, it, it, it's just, it's, it's you know, sometimes it's hard to get aboard the boat and, and go for the ride just because of the loppy waves on that you can see. But once you get out into the bay, you realize it's dead calm. So um, that's the thing, and that's the reason we want to do more extensive research to make sure we take this on the right path and use a a template that somebody else is already using, you know, uh, and develop our own template that suits our needs and our environment and our uh, economy, right? So uh, that's the whole reason of the association is to get that research done, and that way when we do transition into hydroponics, because I do see Canada taking a bigger role and a bigger lead in hydroponics um, eventually because they have to. I mean, the big reason I wanted to call today was to actually uh, tell you guys about the recent conference we did in February um, where we uh, hosted a conference for 66 Hutterite colonies. They had 66 representatives from different Hutterite colonies. Each colony could contain hundreds of people. Right. So this was out in Manitoba. We are we had our vice president actually in person giving a speech. Um, two of our members presented virtually. I gave them the full walk through the greenhouse and stuff. So it's really, really uh, inspiring to see a group of people like the Utterites who are, are similar to the Mennonites and, and Amish, uh, but totally different at the same time. Uh, it's very, very inspiring to see a group of people like that realize the potential of hydroponics themselves and get on board the bandwagon after hundreds of years of being of doing the same thing and of course you have your one or two skeptics and stuff like that but the education and being there to actually educate them and explain that this is actual natural things that happen in nature and we're just simulating it to uh to uh, be able to produce all year round 
is 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 something that's uh, substantial, right? Uh, absolutely. So when you talk about research, researching what the technology itself, or the robust nature of how of hydroponics themselves, or the type of greenhouses that they'd be housed in, what type of research are we talking Every- about? Everything from the ground up, Patty, you need to know what is the most feasible operation to run in regards of uh, efficiency. You need to know exactly what is the best uh, fertilizers, lights, uh, and and grow environment for each individual plant that you want to grow in order to speed up the process. So right now, I grow a variety of different plants and species and in order for me to really lock down on each individual one, I need to grow them individually in their own setting and stop concentrating on a bigger variety and focus more on one plant at a time so we can go from, say, 100 growing days down to 70 growing days. Like, and that's the beauty of hydroponics is you can, you can um, adjust it and improve it, and by doing so, you reduce the amount of time it takes to grow you can reduce the amount of fertilizer you're using because certain plants might not need as much fertilizer as other plants. So you, you have to get that information down to a science. So when you move forward, you have the most feasible and uh, sustainable growing methods and practices. So that way, everybody can be successful and we can actually make a difference versus uh, what happened with Sprung. I believe, you know, there wasn't enough research done. Uh, into the marketing research side of it. So every little detail counts when it comes to research and development. So that's exactly what we're focusing on. We're focusing on even uh, stuff right down to like plant disease. We've got a new member now out of Manitoba. He's actually working with the government of Manitoba, and he's their major in plant pathology, which is plant disease. And people wouldn't know this right now, but there's actually – uh, diseases in Canada that we're fighting and we're working together to rid uh, Canada of because it's coming in from foreign seeds and stuff like that. So it's all things we need to look at and we need to ensure that we're moving in the right path and then we have the support that we need to do so because uh, you know, me and another fellow grower have actually started growing root vegetables. So there's your potential. Right? Do you happen to know of any agri-food department in any institution of higher learning or university across the country doing some sort of pure research into hydroponics? Well, I've actually just been uh, in contact with Grenfell um, University, Memorial Grenfell Campus, and I'm working with Dr. Chima, and and uh, forgive me if I get his last name wrong, uh, Lagar, Lagarada. And uh, they're both doctors in their field of of, uh, agriculture. And they've started their own little scientific experiment research themselves. They were out to check out my research because uh, I'm more into leafy produce and they're trying to do cucumbers and tomatoes. So uh, they will actually be at our meeting tonight that we're having with our our 22 members. Uh, We've increased drastically and, and, you know, we're, we're reaching out to, Uh, We've got uh, the Fraser Valley University representative will be meeting with us soon. Uh, There's a representative from the University of Guelph going to be joining the team as well. So it's all these unique people and and, uh, different opinions and experience and education levels like that that we're working with uh, to build our parameters and our operations manual on how we uh, safely handle hydroponic produce, right? So it's all really good stuff, and we're really happy at, at the way it's moving and uh, the people that we're attracting to it. It's, it's fantastic, really. Uh, I hope that we can see some leaps and bounds growth 
you know, in both traditional and maybe some more small farms, like we were so very much used to. And of course, that's gone by the wayside. The mega farm has taken over. But I really do, with just my base understanding of hydroponics, see that as the next big agri-food opportunity, certainly right here in this province, we could sure do with it. And it's not simply about food production. It's also about the proximity to market. So more and more regions that are under service can absolutely see an increase in production close by where they live through the use of hydroponics. There's no doubt. Uh, I always appreciate the time, Mackenzie. Thanks for the call this morning. All right, sir. I just want to let everybody know that we have started a, a new Facebook page. It was it was inevitable. It just took a little time and a little bit of cohesion. I, we got our uh, lead executive educator from Succeed Sydney to put it together for us. So she did a fabulous job. If anybody wants to reach out to us or see what we're doing, you can find us on Facebook, Canadian Hydroponics Association. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Mackenzie. Bye-bye. That's Mackenzie Warford. He owns Papa's Farms, and he's the co-founder of the Canadian Hydroponic Association. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Okay. How about you? Oh, doing good. Thanks. And thanks for having me on your show. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, Patty, what I want to bring up today, there, as we know, recently you had a, uh, a bad situation happen at the Carbonair uh, Seniors uh, Home. And uh, as you know, uh, got into the media and so forth. And I think social services or social workers couldn't do nothing for this uh, gentleman and uh, he got uh, badly uh, beaten up or whatever the case may be but uh, the remedy to that is uh, why don't they put security in those homes like they got at the hospital the hospital they got security and same thing they should do the same thing for the homes because there's no way that uh, healthcare professionals could uh, keep a tab on everything with the workload and everything they got now it's almost probably virtually impossible but won't he just put security like the hospitals got uh, and do the same for Well, them? I think the security that you see, for instance, in an emergency room is to deal with people who lash out or they are going after the uh, healthcare worker or the triage nurse, what have you. When we're talking right. about a patient in a long-term care facility, and in this case on the dimension ward, we're talking more about patient care than we are keeping a lid on people in a waiting room, for instance. So I think that, yeah. you know, when we talk about security, that can come in a variety of different features. And, you know, I feel bad for all hands because it's quite likely that the person who doled out the beating is not in their right mind either and really didn't know what they were doing. But we can't just pretend that there's nothing can be done because we have to protect people who are residents. I mean, that man, I saw the pictures. Mm -hmm. The daughter sent me the pictures. And I tell you what, it haunted me for a long time because he took an awful beating. And then this lady who sent me an email a couple of days ago about the fact that her mother just got beat up on a dementia ward. So we know what happens. I don't know how prevalent it is. I don't know how common it is. But if we can reduce it as much as humanly possible, we have to do something. Yeah, well, something's got to be done. But, yeah, yeah, you're like, I agree with what you're saying to a point there. But when you look at the hospitals, they got security there all day long or all night long. And, they, and especially they had security during the, the, the COVID-19. They had a really boost up. But uh, I think that, that at least if you had security to the home, at least security can monitor things. Or if they see someone straying off or going doing something, 
uh, you know, you need to head it off and stop it and, and warn somebody. So I think there's something that they're really going to have to take a good hard look at it. Because I've seen that gentleman's pictures on the news as well. And, uh, and a thought occurred to me. I said, why not have security in the home like the, uh, the hospital? Now, yes, you're right, the security at hospital emergency. But from what I gather, security uh, at the hospitals now are all over the hospital. They look after all of it. Because I know when you go into the hospital now, you see securities and they got their office set up. But they, they're there for the whole hospital, from what I gather. So uh, I think something that's it's, it's no harm to take a look at and try to curtail things uh, for the better, if possible. There's no harm to take a look at anything because the stories are just brutal. So, yes, yeah, take uh, a look. Uh, yeah. Sure, why not? Yeah, and, and you're right. It is, it's, it's very, it's, uh, there's no words to describe it, and especially if you got a loved one in, then all of a sudden like this happens. And, 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 uh, and the way the healthcare system is now, like I said, the healthcare providers could be a nurse or a licensed practical nurse or whatever the case may be. It's just no, they got a job now to keep up with their own job and then try to monitor things. Like it's literally impossible. So I think that's uh, security could be a good add on to this and, and try to curtail it or bring it down to zero if possible for these situations to uh, happen. Sure. Yeah. And I hope if any government officials uh, listening to the show, which they are, well, uh, take a look at this aspect, uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we can improve things uh, for the better. Hopefully so, Daryl. I appreciate the time. Okay, again, thank you for your time as well, Patty. All the best to you and your listening audience and uh, staff at VOCM. Same to you, Daryl. Thank you. Right on. Thank you. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Margaret, you're on the air. Yeah, Patty, I just want to send a bouquet out to Stacy for reporting the elder abuse in Carbonaire. I'm upset by this. This is very common. And I've had experiences with this since I was a child. So I know what I'm talking about, but I support Stacy in reporting, and there should be more reporting done. Send her a bouquet for me. Yeah, not everyone wants to go to the media, and I understand that, but when we don't hear the stories, then we don't make the moves to eliminate these stories or reduce them as much as we can. So, Margaret, not to pry, but you say that you've had experience with this over the years. Uh, Do you have an example? Is there anything you want to tell us about? (laughs) No, I don't want to talk about it right now. Okay, that's fine by me. I I just want to send her, and I support her 100%, and anybody else that would like to report elder abuse thank you patty i appreciate your time margaret thank you thank you you're yep. welcome bye-bye yeah i mean the stories are extremely difficult and so inside this review of long-term care and personal care i mean this is an important piece of work to be done because we all know to be true is that we entrust these facilities to take care of our loved ones your mom or dad your nan or papa or whoever it is to you and to know that some of these things happen and then whether it not be the percentage of residents living in restraints and taking antipsychotic drugs and preparing for the future, which is not just in a long-term care facility or an institution. It's bigger and broader than that. So, yes, Stacy's brave enough to come forward, but can you imagine what happened to you and your family? Immediately, I, I suppose it's the combination of emotions, right? It's the anger, it's the sadness, and then it's the perpetual worry because your father or mother will remain in that ward. And, you know, what do we do if, for instance, if someone has a history of violent outbursts, how do you deal with it in practical terms? We had a lady on yesterday, her name was Diane, and she had worked on a dementia ward in a long-term care facility. 
as she said, the go-to, generally speaking, was to give the patient something like a uh, an Ativan or something to just try to calm them down. But of course, that's not an ongoing issue. And at night, specifically, she said, there'd only be two nurses on staff. And so you can't be everywhere at all times. And so maybe it's as simple as some of these issues boil down to staffing uh, levels. And, you know, there was a lady that used to call years ago. Uh, I can't remember the name of the law she was trying to see uh, implemented in legislation. I think it was Claire's Law about staffing ratios and an independent supervisor on all the floors and all of these different wards. But just that review has got to be all-encompassing, 100% because the stories are just a little bit too severe. And you know, the heart-wrenching story that we hear about, for instance, this morning we spoke to it, the Wolfries. Married 69 years, and they've been separated for the last 18 months. So whatever solutions might be brought forward by the province might not be in time for that family. But we know that it might be happening to you and your family today. But others who are out there just looking down the road as to what's going to be the eventual outcome for their mom and dad as they age and the potential to possibly have to move out of their own home. But, of course, I'll say this again because it is part of the health accord, and I think it's the hope that many people would share, is that it's not only about cost-benefit analysis. It's all about what's best for individuals. And so if that means we expand a bit of home care offering, pay home care workers what they're worth, so they can stay at home. It just seems to me that that would be the real go-to for many people. Uh, let's take a quick look on the Twitter before we run out of time. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. One gentleman make a couple of interesting uh, takes on the ambulance system. One is, like for instance, in the city of St. John's, they got a GPS tracker on the plow, so I can go to an application to see where all the plows are. If you're in a place like up the shore at this moment in time, if every ambulance, when in use, had a GPS activated, you'd know, or you'd have a better idea about just how close an ambulance would be to you and the potential response time. So that's an interesting idea. I don't know. Now, I know the regional health authorities and the private operators, they know where the ambulances are at all time, but the general public, not so much. That's interesting. All right, good show today. We'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.